question. Can everybody hear me? Is everybody, can, can you, good, okay. And uh, yeah, this is our uh, second space architecture gathering. We have two uh, parts to it. The first part is the morning session. We'll be talking about simulators and simulations. And uh, uh, in the afternoon, we'll have a August gathering of uh, international space architects and what they are thinking in terms of uh, envisioning the future. Now, um, let me run through a few slides because I have a few minutes. Our morning session is like so, and I can already see a few faces uh, who are in there. Um, um, uh, there are a few slight changes. Um, the 1050 uh, segment has been reassigned uh, to Jacqueline, uh, who I see on the screen. Um, good morning, Jacqueline. And uh, uh, I also see that um, uh, Michaela um, is going to uh, take another spot at 12.35, just before panel discussion. So those are the uh, important changes to uh, think about, but we want to run this, <laughs> it is a tight program, and even tighter uh, in the uh, uh, afternoon session. Uh, so bear with me while I just go through one or two more slides, and we'll be off and running. Um, with uh, um, the lineup here. Uh, Ken, is this lineup right? Do we have all? Uh, yeah, yes, uh, I think Bob is not here yet. Angelo is not here yet. yet. Uh, Bernard is not here yet. And the Professor Riesman, I, I haven't seen him, but he might show okay. up later. He'll come around noon, I think. Yeah, so yeah. The see. other people, let me see. Hank, is Hank here? Uh, no, uh, I don't see him. He's no? not here yet. Okay, he will come in at, at the right time, I hope, because we've sent all these things uh, to everybody and we are reminded them many times. But anyway, so um, just to give you a feeling about what simulations and simulators are about, uh, particularly for those uh, uh, who are in, engaging this to find out what it's all about, uh, whenever we uh, build and operate a complex system, be it an aircraft or spacecraft or missions, they are, they are complex operations because many people are involved, many systems are involved, and uh, you need to coordinate um, in a manner that makes the mission run smoothly. Uh, the ultimate um, <laughs> complex system simulation happens every year in our waters and elsewhere. Uh, it's not a good thing, but uh, it is done. Um, it, 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 it is about preservation of um, society and cultures and so on. We call it the war games. Um, but in the civilian areas, uh, we have very interesting simulations happening right now that include things like uh, climate change and uh, uh, many other, um, the building of industrial systems can have simulations. Um, and in our context, what we are about 
this morning is about humans simulating human activities in extreme environment habitats. It's a focused area. And uh, uh, to give you some attributes, uh, many things go wrong during uh, uh, human activities inside of systems. Uh, most of the time, things seem to be going in a very linear manner. All of a sudden, uh, things get out of control. Um, uh, we call them non-linear sometimes. Um, uh, in engineering parlance, we call them stochastic sometimes. So uh, these are the things that we can get a handle on if we rehearse and practice. <laughs> and as you know, even in the ballet, uh, you do simulations and rehearsals. So think of simulations and simulators as rehearsals and rehearsal mechanisms to provide a reliable and safe support during uh, the real activity. Now, in our context, when I mean extreme environments, it's seriously extreme. We are going into vacuum in space. Uh, we have um, uh, serious radiation difficulties. We have complete loss of gravity sometimes or partial gravity sometimes and uh, temperature extremes. These are not places that humans are meant to be in. At least we don't think they are, but we yet want to do this. So in our specific area, we'll be looking at um, habitats and infrastructure developments, how we build these things up, how to preserve and enhance productivity in the crew system. So the crew are the most important people um, in the whole um, simulation context. And um, in the deeper context, we, we want to know if uh, there are ways that our species can survive beyond planet Earth. And so that is why um, the simulations are important. And as you know, um, we are talking about the move from the Holocene to the Anthropocene, where we are seen as, the, as a species responsible for messing up, fessing up, and uh, doing something uh, to, uh, to uh, enhance life on planet Earth. There are new rationales for all of these things. And the young people, the new generation thinks, um, Elon Musk, for instance, thinks we should settle the planets to make human survival uh, um, feasible, not only on Earth, elsewhere too. Um, and Jeff Bezos thinks our primary ambition is to protect and make the Earth beautiful. John Marburger, our dean at USC, uh, our uh, earlier dean who went on to work with, uh, um, with the Bush senior administration as the science and technology policy director, brought up the idea of bringing the whole of our solar system into our economic sphere of influence. A very powerful thought, but with some consequences. And then Joseph Campbell, the mentor for uh, George Lucas and the Star Wars. Uh, he talked a great deal about mythology and storytelling, about why it's important to go out, do brave things, come back and tell the story to humanity. Frank White thinks that every time we go out and look down on planet Earth, it changes our mindset and our view and our spirit spiritual experience. 
And finally, there's a new one. The past few years, uh, people are saying that uh, we should preserve our species heritage uh, in space. We put out objects, many times they come back in and burn up. But now that we have objects on the moon, uh, there is a whole group of people who think we must protect that. And I think there's, there's a reason to be really thinking about it. And we'll have more. So we'll, we'll think about that. Good. <clears throat> Uh, of course, and uh, Freeman Dyson thinks uh, he had the most interesting thing to say. He said, we've been looking out into space for so long. We don't see anything. It's so cold. It is black. And it's probably our, um, our duty to go and beautify it. What a great thought. Anyway, so um, <clears throat> in this group, in this lineup, we have picked uh, the heroes uh, who are going to be talking to us about what happened during their simulations. And some of us are going to be there talking about how simulators are being set up. And, uh, and we, will, we will enjoy the show. With that, uh, we are ready to continue. Oh, perfect timing too. All right, Ken, did you want to say anything? Uh, no, I just say uh, uh, welcome everyone. Uh, yeah, I uh, just uh, uh, this is our great pleasure and honor to have all the wonderful uh, speakers and especially uh, the leader, uh, Madhu Professor Sankavanu. And uh, thank you all everyone for uh, joining us today. So enjoy the event. Uh, so please type your question in the Q&A box. Um, uh, uh, chat is uh, okay, but it is hard to track. Uh, if you want to say something out, please raise your click raise raise your hand so we'll uh, mute you at the proper time, and uh, you can tap in chat and network with your fellow attendees, uh, speakers. Uh, it's a great opportunity to uh, uh, relax, you know, enjoy, have fun. Thank you so much. I see that uh, Bernard has joined us. Uh, so uh, without further delay, Bernard, you are all set to go. Can please help him uh, to get him up on screen if there is <clears throat> a difficulty. We have a few minutes. Hello, yes, uh, yes. Thank you very much. So I'm just coming from uh, the closing of an event that we just uh, organized. Uh, I need a screen. Okay. Yeah, stop share, Matu, yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Very good. So I will uh, do that and I share my screen. Thank you. Yes, so that's this one. Okay. And And uh, Bernard, please introduce yourself uh, so that we all know. So I'm Bernard Frank. Yes, yeah, so uh, I work at the European Space Agency, but uh, also we have uh, created, if you, I think you all see my uh, screen and cast of quarters that uh, for uh, this uh, talk on yes. uh, on the moon, mission, yes, yes, science, yes. simulation, inspiration, and diversity. 
So we have started a platform uh, more than 12 years ago called Euromoon Mars, where we develop a number of uh, initiatives, uh, projects, uh, science, uh, technology, but uh, also directly related uh, to uh, simulation and uh, space habitat design, in particular for the Moon and Mars. So I will uh, focus uh, today about uh, some of these aspects in the 10 minutes that I have to talk. So uh, clearly, I come from a background where we built a mission that went to the moon. This was a, a smart one. We uh, uh, launched in 2003. We arrived, and uh, we have mapped area uh, on the uh, South Polar region. So this is an area where we believe that uh, we could uh, establish um, some various uh, uh, module for settlement in the South Pole itself, but also in other areas that are accessible. And um, this is the place, peak of light, where we could have uh, this uh, installation. So um, now I would like to show that uh, after uh, Smart One, we went uh, on uh, using data from uh, various other spacecraft, Chinese, uh, Japanese, Indian and uh, the US. And uh, from that, we can indeed now move to the next step, which is uh, towards a robotic village and then an international lunar base. In, uh, it is also a societal project where we have got mandate from uh, young uh, lunar explorers uh, to develop a project and activities where they can be involved. So this we have discussed a number of EDU uh, community events. and. Uh, in order to uh, prepare the next step, where we will have every year a series of mission robotics uh, that we will in place some of this element of the robotic village, and we'll have also a number of missions with humans uh, there. So the robotic village has, uh, we had Shanghai three, four, and five landers, and you see that. And uh, so uh, 10 years ago, we prepared also ourselves to be part of this initiative. So within the Human Mars project, we built a robotic lander that we uh, tested and, and uh, uh, accommodated with uh, some instruments uh, that includes telescopes, that include also a uh, module from which we can teleoperate some of these uh, precursor ro robotic systems. We uh, tested some cooperative robotics as well. And, uh, see uh, how learning from that, we can move to the next step to deploy larger robotic systems that uh, could emplace large infrastructures on the surface of the moon. So we also started to test a partnership between uh, human landers and uh, robots. That would be a key ingredient, of course, in uh, uh, our way uh, towards the moon base. So this is, you see, a picture we took on the moon with our lander and uh, with a uh, an astronaut uh, maintaining uh, the, the facilities. So we worked um, as well with uh, DLR on the robotic side. Uh, they have been able to develop uh, some uh, fully autonomous uh, and intelligent uh, rovers that can deploy uh, scientific experiment, but also some of the various uh, infrastructure assets that uh, they will need to communicate uh, for energy and uh, for positioning and various functions that we needed towards the robotic village and the human base. So that's uh, some views of a campaign we performed in 2017, and we'll have another one next year in June 2021. So now uh, to prepare ourselves to a sustainable presence on the moon, we have also addressed uh, two aspects. One is uh, what is the type of evolutive uh, uh, 
scenario of architecture where you go from a um, uh, pressurized vehicle, a lander, and then towards an outpost, uh, and, and then towards a more sustainable presence on the moon. And uh, clearly, there are a number of uh, challenges uh, to, to land softly there, get there, operate, communicate, survive, uh, move uh, with, uh, uh, with astronauts, and uh, also use this uh, partnership between human and robot, exploit resources, and address some of the need of general users beyond science and uh, technology, and also that could be uh, stakeholders in the investment. So we have uh, developed this uh, European Mars platform to uh, investigate some of the operational aspect of living on uh, the moon or Mars. So we uh, conducted a number of field uh, campaigns. Uh, so every year where we had two uh, crew of six people doing research in this laboratory, also in the field, demonstrating instrument, uh, questioning the technologies of habitat and studying the human aspect, um, performance uh, and also health, safety and uh, food and other uh, medical aspect. And also we use that as a platform to train young and advanced researchers. So for instance, uh, okay, we conducted some experiment in collaboration with ESA, NASA, various uh, agencies and institutes. We uh, did uh, some Test for extravehicular activities. Here, for instance, we use a JPL radar, uh, or we do drilling and analyze samples. So, this is a type of uh, research activities that uh, will be dominating together with those construction and uh, um, survival activities in the first uh, uh, moment uh, from the outpost to the moon base. So, we have also built a little mini moon module where uh, I lock my students for a few hours and then they can um, ex exercise the, the protocol for telecommunication, for sample analysis. They have a 3D printer so they can produce, manufacture some of the tools. Uh, we also developed an exobiology laboratory to analyze samples or to conduct uh, some life science and botanical experiment like growing uh, plants from lunar soil. So more recently we have a uh, also collaborated to uh, Moon Mars Base, uh, so isolation studies. So we are six uh, crew that are isolated, spending two weeks, and all joyfully learning and uh, doing experiences. Also, we fed with a uh, food grown in situ using uh, uh, aquaponics. So we have also a number of campaigns that uh, uh, we perform in extra extreme environment like Iceland, very similar to the Moon and Mars. And here we have a, uh, set a campaign uh, to um, do research in a lava tube. And next year, we will in place an uh, architectural um, outpost, like a minimum outpost that you would need that could be deployed only uh, in a few days by a team of astronauts. So that really is the first embryonic version of what you could do uh, in addition to your uh, um, lander vehicle uh, to have a more sustainable habitat in the subsurface. So we had also um, within uh, ESA laboratory, ESA lab, which is a federation of 20 university teams, developed the construction of an habitat under ice, a moon habitat, where uh, uh, each university team were responsible for a subsystem. And so Idwig and uh, the Free University of Amsterdam were responsible for the scientific experiment that were conducted there. So we had some robots for deployment. We had this uh, cylindric uh, structure. 
but we even we grow uh, plants and we had a robot uh, monitoring the growth of the plant with uh, artificial intelligence and we bought our lander on the top. More recently, in collaboration with the International Moon Base Alliance, Hank Rogers, we have conducted a number of uh, simulation missions. We call them Yomun Mars IMA ICs or EMIS. So this is a view of the moon base where you have six uh, astronauts uh, spending two weeks uh, now for a moon simulation. So this was a campaign where I was with uh, Hank Rogers uh, testing some EVA equipment, but also uh, some uh, vehicles and uh, some sample analysis techniques. And then uh, every year we have a number of this uh, rotation that we conduct. In addition, we have a very nice mission control center that is uh, midway between the summit of uh, Mauna Loa and the zero sea level, where you can uh, then um, follow and mo monitor the safety and the operation from the astronauts. You can see there, here I had two geologist students doing their thesis work, analyzing samples like on the moon. So, and also they learn how to live there with uh, space food. And so in a summary, uh, that's how we try to uh, contribute uh, this aspect of uh, preparing this moon Mars village on Earth by uh, testing some robotic uh, technologies, instrument aspect, and also doing that in field analog, but also towards the preparation to the outposts and the permanent moon base, we are using habitat uh, that are uh, also uh, uh, used as a research infrastructure and we are conducting a number of experiments to inform also uh, together with the engineering constraints or safety constraints and the architectural constraints, how to uh, optimize efficiently what will be the design of this uh, facility that at the beginning will be in large part used as a research uh, facility. So thank you very much. That's what uh, the Moon Mars project is, uh, the platform is doing. And we are very much uh, eager also to work uh, with architects uh, to build actually on Earth, some of this prototype uh, facility, so with uh, some of you uh, community, and uh, to put uh, some of these uh, candidate astronauts to use them and also uh, learn and uh, perform research in those uh, Moon Mars uh, village on Earth. Thank you very much for your attention. Uh, th thank you, Bernard, for um, your uh, indefatigable uh, works uh, over the years. Um, you know, we have all watched you uh, over several years on all the different projects you have engaged in. And uh, uh, in particular, uh, the past uh, uh, two or three years, uh, your engagement with um, lava tubes, uh, uh, Bernard. Oh, okay. and, and you're mm -hmm. in good company here because uh, um, we have some yes. lava tube explorers, as you can see. And uh, tell me, uh, tell me what is the reason? Uh, I mean, there are many people listening to you now. And that's why I'm asking you this. Mm -hmm. What is yeah. the reason that um, you decided to um, focus on lava tubes and uh, and um, uh, be general because the audience would like to know. Yeah. Actually, we are, we are interested in both surface habitat. So we are also conducting a number of activities in surface habitat because at the beginning, there will be some where we will rely on, on infrastructure we bring with us on the surface. But lava tubes allow uh, to protect uh, yourself 
from cosmic radiation, from meteorites, and also they have a temperature environment which is more comfortable than if you are outside. Um, and what is new, we have discovered on the moon 200 entrances of lava tubes. So now we know there are some, so we have a destination and we would like to, uh, to go there. So we, are, we want also to demonstrate that in addition to a surface habitat where you land and you have some infrastructure, you have also a possibility to have a refuge in the lava tube. It's also maybe a very interesting place that you could have some ice deposits. Right. You could have even some uh, resources in the lava tubes that would uh, make it uh, good for survival and of course for research. So we are developing both surface habitat and lava tube habitat. Absolutely, you, 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 you really spelled it out clear. Um, uh, questions for Bernard. Um, uh, Ken, how are we doing on time? I think we have a few minutes of questions. Yeah, we, we, are, we have five minutes for, for Q&A. Very good. Uh, so we are taking questions for Bernard, uh, who is... Um, yeah. So there are some on the chat. Um, um, let me take a If ESA have a list of analog test goals and objectives. Yeah, and uh, on that, uh, actually, so this uh, activity, your moon Mars, is uh, developed by the International Lunar Exploration Working Group which is a federation where we had support from ESA, from NASA, from uh, uh, other space agencies. And now we have created a foundation that is self-sustaining and then providing this, uh, this uh, training program for youngsters that benefit everybody. Uh, but uh, also at ESA, we have a set of analog uh, uh, test goals, uh, analog in the sense going in environments that look like the moon, or analog as a place where you perform isolation studies like the astronauts are going to encounter, right. and you have places uh, in Antarctica, or you have places in, in some technical uh, laboratory where you perform some of these uh, isolation studies. There was a question about, uh, oh, should we need artificial gravity uh, for six months? Yes. That's an interesting question, but I believe that uh, on the moon, because we have a sixth gravity, so it's not as... Uh, uh, difficult at zero G and uh, there should be a way uh, without creating uh, uh, additional uh, infrastructure to make use of the fact that we are in one six G. Uh, we will have to have countermeasures uh, concerning uh, uh, yes, a bone loss, muscle loss, exercise. But also we can use to advantage the fact that you have a place, you have resources and one six G you will be able to put wings and to carry the weight of your body uh, just by beating wings. And so we'll have uh, some uh, dome infrastructure where we'll be able to fly from one place to another. And also we develop some lunar Olympic uh, games where you will make use of this uh, one six gravity. Yeah, very imaginative, uh, Bernard. Uh, the third question, uh, do you have any idea of uh, the lava tube constitution? And you know, what does it look like, soil, structure, and so on? I'm, I'm, uh, I'm hoping yeah. that Ganchala really means on the moon, not on Earth, because we know what lava yeah. tubes look like. On yeah. Earth. yeah, actually on, uh, on Earth, uh, lava tubes are quite, uh, they are, because uh, it's, uh, you have a kind of a frozen uh, uh, lava flow, and uh, it's, uh, you can really uh, 
rip yourself. It's a very uh, difficult. And I think I would expect we'd have something quite similar as well in Labatube. So they need to be prepared or you need to have also some infrastructure. And we are now looking at some inflatable uh, material they can put inside the lava tube. Uh, the, uh, and, but you will have less uh, dust than you have on the surface. So that can be also an advantage. You will have a less uh, uh, hazards from this uh, very uh, uh, toxic, but also uh, uh, cancer, uh, cancerigen uh, dust, carcinogen dust that you have on the surface. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's uh, hard. Huh? You need to be protected when you do an EVA. That's what we simulate uh, with our expedition. So we did some in Hawaii, we did some in, in La Réunion, also in other places in Iceland. Excellent. Uh, uh, thank you. So, yeah, yeah, so you need to have some uh, robot or a system that will make uh, the lava tube a bit more friendly for habitation uh, uh, there. One, one of the things that we worried about was uh, how um, it to go into lava tubes, but now that we have these natural skylights, uh, we know how to go in there. Um, it's only that uh, we need to develop uh, the, uh, the techniques uh, to uh, go through uh, the skylight uh, without, um, <laughs> without uh, uh, causing trouble for us, or the skylight, or or the lava tube. Uh, I think yes. with that, yeah, we have uh, tested some of this in small in Hawaii. So we had some uh, 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 rope that was holding uh, some system. I think it's the first uh, way. Uh, I am myself a speleologist, and in my youth, I spent uh, three full days and three nights uh, in uh, underground. So I think uh, we, we need to train some of the astronauts to be as speleologists, but with their EVA uh, suit, but also uh, make use uh, of some robotic system to do a good reconnaissance and mapping in advance so that uh, we have already a plan of where to put some of the assets for installation infrastructure access uh, in a safe way. Uh, Excellent. And so and the complementarity between asset on the surface, very close to the hole, and asset inside the lava tube. Very good. Thank you very much, uh, Bernard. So okay. nice to see you. Uh, and uh, we are on to our next. Uh, um, Excellent. Uh, Ken? Yeah, next is Keelan and Daniel. They together have 15 minutes. Oh, great. OK, are they here? Yes. OK, good. Uh, thank you so much, Bernard. Okay, yeah, okay, all the best. Can stop, so I, share. I stop. Yes. Okay, can everybody hear me? Uh, we can, Caleb. Uh, uh, Keelan? Yes, Keelan. Okay. Go okay, ahead. let me share my screen. Um, can everyone see the presentation? Yes, we can. Okay. All right, so we can get started. Um, we'll be presenting the California Research Analog for Deep Space and Lunar Exploration, uh, also known as CRADLE. I'm Keelan Gard. I'm a resource engineer as well as an analog mission controller for CRADLE. Uh, hello, I'm Daniel Lin. I am a operations engineer for CRADLE. Cradle is an end-to-end -end mission test analog site for lunar and Martian environments, and we are located in Lucerne Valley, California, in close proximity to major robotics and aerospace companies, 
in an accessible location next to large interstates and near major airports. Cradle offers 60 acres of privately owned land with plans to expand that is analogous to lunar and Martian surfaces, and this allows for end-to-end -end mission simulations for a variety of operations, including robotic exploration and mining, autonomous shelter construction, bioastronautics experiments, and in-situ resource utilization operation, all of which are already being conducted by some of our clients in analog simulations. Uh, so as Daniel mentioned, one of our main focuses at Cradle is analog simulations of astronaut missions on the lunar or Martian surface. Uh, we conduct full duration missions simulating spacesuits, astronaut habitats, and numerous experiments that would be performed on the lunar or Martian surface, which our simulated astronauts carry out throughout the day. Uh, during these analog missions, we study the effectiveness of certain operations, we study astronaut physiology, um, and the astronauts' uh, ability to conduct their experiments. We provide our clients with facilities and infrastructure that allows their experiments to be integrated into our proven astronaut simulations. Um, our astronauts live inside our lunar habitat mock-up, which includes a habitation module with a suit airlock portal and a cupola module, which we use to study plant growth and other experiments. In the top right image, you can see what the habitat looked like before it arrived to the cradle site. And then in the CAD drawings, you can see uh, what it looks like now being converted to a, a lunar habitat. And in the red, you can see our suit portal um, and the green is the habitat. So to aid in our analog mission, Cradle implements remotely controlled rovers. The picture on the right shows the rover gathering regolith in our lunar simulant pit. Uh, the first of the missions to incorporate the rover is the vent pipe communications and lunar navigation system. The system was tested for one of our clients with CubeSats and the rover to form a navigational system that can be used for exploring lunar and Martian terrain where satellites are not well established yet. Mm -hmm. uh, as we mentioned, our remotely operated or autonomous rovers push the regolith simulant from our regolith pit. Uh, they deposit the regolith into a funnel at the top of a slope, which simulates the rim of a crater. Uh, the simulant then travels through a chute and passes through a gravity-fed sieve, which sorts the regolith based on grain size. Um, the larger grain sizes are used to create sandbags for construction, and the finer grain sizes are used for regolith sintering. So on the left, you can see one of our astronauts using our solar concentrator with the fine sieved regolith. And in the middle, you can see the process of melting the regolith. And then on the right, one of our obsidian samples that was created. So we'll be using those to create bricks out of the lunar regolith to construct habitats. Uh, so here's some things we offer currently and moving forward. Cradle strongly believes in educational outreach and connecting the college community with the challenges and new technologies that are prevalent in the space industry. For this purpose, Cradle has already involved students from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Prescott, UCLA, and CU Boulder in analog mission operations. 
In partnership with the Epic Education Foundation, Cradle had also recently held our first UMoon conference. This conference included presentations from a panel of industry professionals and students on solutions for space challenges, as well as a guest, guest appearance from an astronaut speaker. This allowed students to receive feedback on their ideas and learn more about technologies that are currently in development while networking with the industry. Cradle will continue to provide these educational outreach opportunities by hosting more UMoon conferences, which will give students exposure and engagement. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, we have our clients use the robotics testing area to evaluate their technology in simulated lunar terrain. There's a lot of potential opportunities for other companies or universities to test their own equipment and even operate remotely through our telerobotics infrastructure that we talked about. As Keelan mentioned, we have remote mission simulation capabilities. Our first analog mission was recently completed and it connected students who served as mission controllers from the states of Colorado, Arizona, and California. Our facilities support remote connection, allowing clients and students from across the globe to utilize our facilities. So we'll offer some examples real quick of some other experiments and operations that have already been carried out on behalf of our clients. So you can get an idea of what that looks like. Uh, so first up, we have an ongoing microbial study during our analog missions. This experiment studies the growth of bacteria in a closed environment for extended periods of time. We integrated this experiment into our analog missions and the astronauts carried out the experiments as part of their daily routine. We've also incorporated various exercise techniques into the mission operations of our SimNauts for another client. This specifically compared Western resistance training, Tai Chi and meditation, and what effects this had on astronaut physical and mental health during mission operations. Uh, this part of the operation will continue to be included in future cradle analog missions to obtain a broader set of data. Uh, next up, we have radio astronomy. Our SimNauts conducted a radio astronomy experiment, which used radio signals to listen to celestial bodies such as Jupiter. Uh, it's just another example of why our favorable location and facilities are useful to our clients because Cradle is located in an area with no light pollution and no visual obstructions, making it ideal for astronomy related experiments in addition to other lunar analogs. Could also con conducted soil sample analysis experiments, verifying the chemical composition of two of our lunar simulants for another one of our clients. Our analog terrain allows for testing of autonomous rover capability to discover valuable resource deposits in an unfamiliar terrain by staging various types of soil samples. Uh, so lastly, we have our radish growth experiment, which is also ongoing. We have created infrastructure. In this case, it's our cupola module uh, to simulate a small greenhouse on the surface of the moon or Mars. We're studying how much water and what soil nutrients various plants need to grow effectively on the lunar surface. Um, this alone has value, but since our astronauts are performing the gardening in addition to their other tasks throughout the day, it's also useful to study from an operational perspective to see how feasible it would be in real lunar applications. Um, 
We'd like to close out by emphasizing the versatile range of accommodations at Cradle and how our infrastructure is geared towards supporting our clients' operations and experiments. Uh, Cradle looks forward to partnering with more universities and companies. We're ready to provide end-to-end long-duration mission simulation. Uh, before we go into questions, we'd just like to give a quick thanks to everyone involved in the projects we discussed. Um, thank you for listening to our presentation, and we'll be happy to take any questions or comments. Thank you. Okay. Uh, uh, thank you, um, Keelan and uh, Daniela. Uh, uh, you know, I uh, came across um, your activities uh, um, yeah, very recently, uh, in fact, uh, earlier this year, um, when I was told that uh, such a project is ongoing. And, uh, um, and then I visited with your uh, uh, webinar, um, uh, which was very nice. And you know, what uh, I liked most about uh, the whole uh, project was that um, uh, younger people were involved. And um, uh, that is vital to, uh, to this kind of effort because many of these kinds of activities uh, take a long time uh, to, uh, to produce useful results. And uh, so I'm very happy to see that happening. And I enjoy visiting the Mojave and uh, the high desert. Um, uh, so tell me uh, how many people are on site? Do you, are you, uh, do you involve directly with these projects or uh, are there um, other people maintaining it? and your telerobotic operations. Um, uh, you know, uh, when I was um, uh, working in that area, we used to always um, have a buffer, um, a 2.7 second um, uh, buffer so that we could really simulate uh, moving things around as though you were on earth and working on the moon. Uh, are you doing things like that? Um. So you asked how many people we have on site. Um, during our missions, we have typically three astronauts um, in the simulation. Um, and then we have several other people on site to help them if needed. Um, we have people standing by and our mission controllers are remote. Uh, I don't think we implemented a, a time delay, but that's a good idea. But we typically had, I think, Daniel, do you remember how many mission controllers we had remote? I think it was six to seven per operation. Six to seven, yeah. and then the three astronauts on site. And then could you repeat the last question you asked? Oh, the last question was uh, about, um, uh, that's what you answered right now. Okay. And, okay. Uh, uh, any other questions? I see one from which says, um, can you share the lifestyle modification results? from the use of uh, Tai Chi and meditation. Are you okay to share some initial findings and processes? Yeah, so the idea was to study the effect on the astronauts' metabolism, um, but also their psychological mental health. 
Um, of course, they're in very uh, closed quarters uh, with two other people for long periods of time. And so we were trying to analyze the uh, effect it would have on their ability to relax. Uh, so we conducted those experiments in the evening uh, just before lights out to make sure uh, to analyze whether or not it helped them relax. Um, we're still analyzing that data, um, if I recall. Uh, Daniel, do you remember any initial findings we had from that or who had the, the I don't best have all the stats off the top of my head, but um, our contact info is on the slides and we have some results published in the papers. So if you'd like to reach out to us for that, those we'd be happy to provide them. Off Definitely. the top of my head, I believe Tai Chi was the most effective in their physical health. Yeah, I, I believe that that's accurate. Yeah, Tai, tai Chi, um, certainly the resistance band training that we used was the most um, straining, I think. And the meditation, I think, definitely helped uh, the astronauts relax the best. Um, thank you for your question. Excellent. Uh, you know, I also like uh, the clarity and you know, the, the, uh, the seeing clarity in the desert for most time, most of the time. And uh, uh, I hope you guys go uh, take a look at the, at the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction happening now. It's pretty, pretty beautiful. I, I stuck uh, some of the pictures I took um, on my Instagram and Facebook. I mean, it's very, very beautiful, uh, those kinds of things that happen in disguise. Um, uh, any other questions? Uh, uh, oh yes, from your CEO, he says uh, we need to do more more studies. I think you saw that uh, chat just come up right now. Um, uh, with that, um, uh, Kaylin, thank you very much, uh, Keelan and Daniel. We are off to our next speaker. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this, I think next can, is Jackie. We can see you, Jackie. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? <laughs> Very good. We're ready to share. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Please let me know when you can see my screen. Uh, yes, right about now, Jackie, you can go full screen. That's perfect, okay. Okay, perfect. Um, well, good morning or afternoon or good evening. Uh, my name is Jacqueline Silva Martinez. I'm currently working at NASA Johnson Space Center, uh, supporting the Gateway Program as the Human Systems Integration Lead. Uh, and uh, this uh, um, presentation today is uh, about the uh, human exploration research analog and the HERA missions that we have at, uh, at the NASA JSC facility. So I'll share some of the experiences that I had there and talk a little bit about their uh, infrastructure. So uh, first I was part of the uh, campaign tool, uh, mission uh, four, as you see there in 2015, where I serve as the mission specialist. And, and we were four crew members there. 
Uh, this is before we got uh, into the uh, into the habitat, and uh, the selection for for these uh, analog uh, is done in the same uh, way as it's done for uh, astronauts. Uh, they go through the same uh, physical uh, and psychological tests that they require there, and the same type of educational uh, requirements. Uh, so I was selected to uh, to be there with, along with other uh, three crew members. Uh, we were assigned uh, different positions. So one of them was commander, fly engineer, and two mission specialists. But uh, we were all doing the same type of activities. Uh, so uh, here, just uh, some history of uh, Hera habitat uh, origins. Uh, this uh, habitat, as you can see in the right, uh, it's uh, uh, that, that's the interior part, uh, but uh, it was previously used as, um, as part of the desert research and technology studies. Maybe uh, some of you are uh, familiar with that, uh, where the program goals were to use the um, uh, arid climate, uh, harsh uh, winds and rocky desert terrain to um, evaluate the different conditions uh, while developing the tests uh, in, uh, for space flight and, uh, and equipment. So it was um, already kind of uh, ready for when it was transitioned uh, to the uh, Fly Analogs project uh, in the Human Research Program at, at JSC, and the habitat was ready uh, for the isolation and confinement studies uh, since 2013. So uh, currently, uh, this habitat is, uh, is located at JSC and it connects the, and the airlock um, that you see in, the, in there to, to the main building and provides high fidelity maca for these uh, simulations. So let's look at the architecture a little bit more. Uh, here you see on the, uh, on the top is a cylindrical uh, three-story habitat uh, and it has four port uh, habitat uh, unit in the sides. Uh, 47 uh, feet across and 25 feet uh, in height. Uh, the, uh, the part that we didn't simulate was the, the uh, here you see the hygiene module in the right side uh, is um, uh, very, you not know, like you will have at home. Uh, so that, that part was not uh, simulated. And the airlock, um, we didn't get to go outside to do uh, EVAs. Um, and actually during my mission, it was one of the early ones uh, we didn't uh, do EVAs uh, um, with VR either, but currently they're using uh, virtual reality to, to conduct uh, extravehicular activities out of the, the airlock. Uh, so that, that's for the second, uh, the, the first floor. And the second one, well, level two, uh, is where, where we will use it as entertainment. And that's where the galley was. Um, and uh, it was a multi-purpose room same as the, the first floor, uh, but um, you, you see the cylindrical part there and I'll show you uh, a video and pictures later to convey that better. Uh, and the exercise area uh, was there too. Uh, so there was uh, an area uh, you see in the, in the corner that will have a ladder, a ladder to go up to the, uh, the crew capsules or crew quarters. Uh, so each of us, it was for four crew members uh, had a a part uh, of it. Uh, it was kind of a camping uh, area where you just crawl into it uh, to, to go in uh, and rest there. So those were the four of them. Uh, and that's pretty much it as far as the, the architecture.
a nice overview uh, for Hera. And this was a, a deep space analog uh, to learn about isolation and close quarter um, effects uh, for the individual in the group uh, behavior. And that, that's mainly what they're looking at, the psychological part. Uh, and how do we uh, behave as a team when uh, issues come up? Uh, the, the issues or um, challenges that they will tell us uh, will be already practiced from mission control, uh, but we wouldn't know about it as the subjects. And uh, for some of them, we're part of the um, what they, they already proposed for some of these uh, problems come up because we are uh, enclosed with three other people, right, for, for certain uh, period of time. Uh, so uh, the the missions uh, simulate accelerated uh, transition. This was um, the one that I did was to an, uh, an asteroid geographers, and, and now uh, they are they're doing that for the moon uh, and Mars. And so it depends on the campaigns. Uh, and there was also uh, a lot of use of uh, wearable technologies to, to capture um, social metric and physiological data. Uh, so depending on the groups and the campaigns, uh, the research that, uh, that was done was different, but for some of us had to use a lot of, of things uh, everywhere, <laughs> like from the head to the eyes, the, the hands, uh, or the different parts in the body to, uh, uh, for, to support the, the experiments that other um, researchers were doing. And um, then uh, we also use uh, the same timeline uh, that uh, the ISS uh, crew does. Uh, so that includes um, from the time that, that we wake up, um, it was around seven in the morning uh, to uh, do our daily check with mission control. And we will go over the questions that we had for the day. Uh, there were about two hours uh, for exercise uh, every day. Uh, the, the meal time was, uh, uh, we try to have it around the same time uh, so that we can uh, share, uh, you know, the, the board with the crew members uh, and then um, other experiments or, or uh, maintenance tasks that we had to do and, uh, and then time uh, to sleep for uh, in the evening. Uh, so we have very, very scheduled, very pre-planned. Um, we had the science experiments, technology demonstrations, PAO events, uh, and uh, nowadays virtual reality EVAs. Um, for uh, the, the type of missions uh, that, that we had were two weeks uh, pre-mission training that's uh, standard for all the missions, uh, but there are different campaigns, uh, the seven days, 14, 30, and uh, 45 days currently. Um, the mission control is uh, always available, so 24-7, and uh, we had weekly uh, conferences with family, medical, psychological, so uh, pretty standard to what ISS does. However, uh, we couldn't contact our family members or have internet access outside of there. Um, so it was just half an hour during the, the entire mission to, to connect with them. Uh, for the ISS crew, they will they, they have the possibility to to do that at any point. I'll check. I'm uh, sorry. Yeah. Five, five yes. minutes. Okay, perfect. Uh, and then we have one week uh, post mission debrief. Um, now, if you're interested, currently the campaign is uh, a five uh, ended in March due to to COVID, and, and the sixth one is uh, TBD. 
uh, this two-week mission profile. Uh, just to give you an idea, we had the Orion launch doc, uh, what have for about two days, then we had the transit to uh, Geographus uh, for the first six days, and uh, the next four days uh, it was the uh, rendezvous to uh, Geographus, uh, and then coming back to Earth uh, the the rest of the mission. So that's kind of how they laid it out. And I'll show you a, a video from today. We are actually experiencing some uh, ten minutes delay from Geographos. Uh, we are in our way to the asteroid, and it's uh, day seven. Um, so just here, from what you can see, is uh, some of the videos and the telecommunication system that we use uh, to get in touch with mission control, and um, it's uh, working really quick uh, through the uh, MMSCB. That was just a snapshot of what happened. Uh, going to the second floor, yes, uh, the, the galley again, the exercise area. And that's when we came back from the mission, uh, mission control were waiting for us. Uh, and I was able to do a, um, a mission from the other side. So as mission control, when I uh, was working with uh, operations and for ISS, just preparing for the uh, for a crew uh, astronaut, we called it Space Week. So then the, all the training that they had to do, they also used uh, the HERA facility for that. Uh, so with that, I'll leave you with some links here. If you're interested about the, uh, the analogs, uh, here's some more information on how to apply uh, to those. And with that, thank you. Uh, th thank you, uh, Jackie. Jackie came into our lives when uh, she was a student at uh, ISU and uh, I had the privilege of uh, leading the Planetary Defense Group. And uh, if I remember right, uh, Jackie had to leave uh, uh, during the end of the program for this mission. Am I right to think that? That's correct, yes. Yes, very good. Good, good to see you, Jackie. And uh, um, did you, uh, how, how are we doing on time, Ken? I think we have like one or two minutes only. Okay, okay, yeah, you know, uh, you know, I remember the facility from the time we visited it at DRATS, and I 
Uh, I see uh, Chris uh, uh, talking about it on the Q and A. Um, uh, I, you know, I think it's a fascinating development. It was during uh, the Obama administration, and so uh, all of all of us were thinking about going to the asteroids. And uh, as Jackie mentioned, now we are back to going to the moon. And uh, um, you know, what what are you doing now, Jackie? Uh, now I'm uh, supporting the Artemis uh, mission, uh, primarily in Gateway, uh, looking at the first modules for Halo and uh, PPE to to go to around the moon, have this station that uh, will be more sustainable uh, for future missions to the uh, lunar surface. So I'm very exciting and uh, talking, uh, concentrate on the human aspect, right? Um, putting inputting the, the space architecture part that is not just the design that needs to work but uh, it needs to work for the operators too. Human integration lead. And I think it's very important because in all of these uh, works, um, uh, you end up uh, have to, having to deal with people uh, at either end. In fact, it was good that you mentioned you've been on both sides of the equation um, in mission control and uh, in the crew quarters. Uh, thank you so much, Jackie. I think we are out of time. Thank you. Uh, and uh, if you have more questions, uh, as Jackie mentioned, shoot her an email. Thank you so much. We are going on to the next presenter. Yeah, and Madhu, in the panel, people um, yeah, can raise the question again. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, that's right. Red talk. Bravo. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, this is Pascal. Should I go ahead? Good morning, Pascal. We can see your screen. Please go. Please go. Okay. Ahead. First of all, I enjoyed everybody's talk so far. Uh, and bonjour, Bernard. <laughs> it's good to see everybody. So uh, I have to keep my mask on today uh, in the location where I am, but uh, you don't need to see me anyway. Uh, the slides are going to be whipped through relatively quickly, but I wanted to give you a sense of uh, what we do at the Health Mars project up on Devon Island in the High Arctic, and also uh, maybe some of the lessons we might have learned that are more specific towards design, design of a base, but also possibly design of vehicles, uh, which is essentially the, the second component of, key component of an infrastructure. You have things that are going to be fixed on a planetary uh, surface. Hopefully the base will be fixed. During Constellation, there was talk of moving the whole base. I do not think it's a good idea, uh, in, in large part because it doesn't also translate into a Mars forward scenario that's good because you don't want to contaminate Mars over distances. You want to confine your impact, uh, your environmental impact in one location. Uh, but in any case, uh, the so some of these lessons will be about designing your habitat and others will be about designing your your exploration and mobility systems uh, so uh, since uh, uh, I won't take for granted that uh, you know what I've done uh, I've I have some experience with uh, living in extreme environments it started for me in uh, 1987 when I began to winter over in Antarctica I was doing my national service for France and I uh, spent uh, 402 days uh, at a French station and also uh, at remote outposts on the Antarctic continent. Uh, but this was in Adelie land in 1987 and I came back in 1989. Uh, now, uh, since then that really gave me the bug for polar regions. Uh, they are really interesting as analogs. 
And this is incidentally something I want to mention up front before I forget, which is that even on the Health Mars project, where we have a, a research base that's dedicated to planetary science and, and exploration, uh, we do relatively few simulations. Uh, we, we do partial simulations, but we do very few full-up simulations, uh, in part because uh, for those to be meaningful, we think that you need to really have quite a bit of infrastructure in place and, and some support for that, including in, with the comms systems. Uh, but the other thing is, there's a lot of homework to be done on specific subsystems for exploration. And so we've been focusing a lot on that. So we do partial simulations, which have a, a limited uh, content. And then the rest of the time, a lot of lessons that we are able to learn are not learned from a simulation mode. They're learned simply from the practice, the practice of living in an extreme environment, the practice of, of uh, doing field work, scientific field work in an extreme environment. And you know, as much as we learn lessons about planning expeditions from past polar expeditions, from mountaineering expeditions, from, from special, special forces experiences, from submarine crews, you don't necessarily have to be in a simulation to learn valuable lessons for, for planetary uh, applications. Uh, and so the key thing, of course, is to, is to really pay attention to, to how you extend the lessons you might learn in one mode to, to, to what is important here for us, which is how you would do things on the moon and Mars. Uh, so, so it's not just simulations, it's also just relevance, relevance of what you're doing and how it can, what implications it can have for analogs, uh, for, for, for the actual thing. Uh, so I've spent some time in Spitsbergen as well, skiing expeditions. We've uh, went back to Antarctica three times for summer campaigns collecting meteorites. We also uh, uh, did an expedition across the high Arctic uh, called the Northwest Passage Drive Expedition, where we actually drove a, a habitable vehicle uh, across uh, the high Arctic and uh, this was to transfer our, one of our Humvees from uh, lower latitudes to, to Devon Island uh, by way of the sea ice. So this was a, a winter traverse, a rover traverse. Uh, recently, I've started doing some work in Iceland as well, where we are focusing on ice-rich lava tubes. Uh, lava tubes are always interesting, but the ones that are ice-rich are particularly exciting in the lunar context, and Bernard mentioned those. Uh, and also, I'll tell you a bit about the Helton Mars project and our 23 summers there. Uh, so Devon Island is where the Helton Mars project uh, is located. Uh, it's the largest uninhabited island on Earth. It's the largest single continuous expanse of rocky polar desert on Earth. If you were to characterize the Martian environment in one sort of a quick uh, set of words, it's, it's, a, it's a rocky, cold desert. And uh, well, that's what Devon Island is. Uh, and it's the largest single expanse of that on the earth uh, that's continuous uh, that we have. There are colder deserts on earth. There are drier deserts as well, uh, but they, they don't present the, the uh, vastness as well uh, that you, you can access on Devon Island, which is, which is important. So on the map, for example, on the lower right, uh, you can see two circles. The first circle, the continuous red circle, is the 100 kilometer diameter or radius uh, exploration zone around our base camp. And then the dotted line is the 200 kilometer exploration radius uh, from our base camp. And this, this builds on the concept that we're using with NASA now to, to plan and characterize future exploration zones for human crews on Mars. 
and presumably on the moon as well, uh, which is to identify exploration zones that are approximately 100 kilometers in diameter uh, around a landing site where you would have all your, your fixed infrastructure. Now, uh, Halton Crater, uh, Devon Island has an important feature, which is a meteorite impact crater at Halton Crater. It's 20 kilometers in diameter. So uh, meteor crater, just uh, for reference, is you know 1.2 kilometers in diameter. Uh, this is uh, considerably larger, and the age of the structure is 23 million years old. Uh, so it's home to our project, and our project essentially is, is I think, the first uh, project that was that established a, a base uh, and is entirely focused. Uh, we have no other mission than that on advancing planetary science and exploration. Uh, so just a few pictures on the left, you see uh, two columns of images. The first column is Mars. Uh, the second are geologic analogs to Mars. So there's a wide range of features that are of relevance, uh, if not analogous between the two places. Uh, we have a permanent base, the Houghton Mars Project Research Station, which I'll talk to you about. We test robots. We look at human exploration systems. Uh, we make extensive use of vehicles in our studies, since uh, that's also how. Uh, well, first of all, it's a good it's a good way of doing things in in the polar desert of the Arctic. But it, it for norm for for understandable reasons, is the right way to explore on the Moon and Mars as well. So. Halton Crater is not just a good analog for Mars. It uh, has relevance for the moon as well. For example, Halton Crater is exactly the same size as Shackleton Crater. Shackleton Crater is deeper. It's four kilometers deep. Halton Crater is about only one kilometer deep, but that has to do with erosion over time. But uh, from the standpoint of presenting a site that offers the same scale of exploration and uh, you know, exposed features, it, uh, it's a very relevant, if not the best site on earth to, to, to understand how you explore an impact crater. Uh, our base is set up on the northwestern rim of Halton Crater, uh, just like Shackleton, uh, it, at least during the Constellation program was, uh, it was considered that it's, uh, it's permanently sunlit areas of its rim might be a good place to set up a, a base. You also are dealing with communications with Earth, and in our case, with geostationary satellites uh, that are essentially horizontal. So you have to deal with ground effects in your uh, EM uh, data uplinks and downlinks. Uh, there's, of course, ice in the ground all over the place on Devon Island and uh, around Shackleton as well, due to the permanently shadowed regions and just the polar regions in general. Uh, this permanent solar power in the summer, which is uh, similar in some sense uh, to, to what we would have at Shackleton at, at some times of the year. Uh, and of course, we have an outpost, like I mentioned, that is of the scale, I think, of what we should be aiming for with either the, the Moon Village uh, or, or the Artemis base camp, if those two are not the same thing in the end. Now, here's just some pictures. Uh, on the left, you have Taurus Littoral Valley at the Apollo 17 site and similar slopes, features, topography, barren terrain uh, at Halton Crater. Okay, so uh, you just have to wear black and white glasses to, uh, to feel like you're on the moon when you're on Devon Island. And if you don't know where to find them, we should invent those. Okay, uh, so here's our base. Uh, now, again, we, we didn't set off uh, to build a base that simulates a Mars base. We built a base that 
supported properly Arctic fieldwork in this extreme environment. And, and, and then we're drawing lessons that we think we can draw for the design of a base on the moon and Mars. Uh, so different models. Uh, excuse me, Dr. Lee, uh, you have uh, like a four minute. Okay. All right. Well, uh, different modules have different functions. Uh, you can read this in detail once, once the presentation is over. Uh, the key thing I would say, the takeaway take thing is that you never have enough storage space. So if you have some storage space plans for your base, multiply that by three and you'll still be short. Okay. So you need a lot of stuff to do exploration properly and you have to store that stuff when you're not quite using it. Uh, we don't use our base in the winter. We could. It's all set up for that. If you have a budget and want to run a campaign, talk to us. We think that the lessons we're learning will help us design future bases on Mars, which is really what we want to have, an international base, an, an international ISS, if you will, on the ground on Mars. And I think all our efforts on the moon should, should uh, take us in that direction that's specific with that specific goal. We test robots. Uh, drones lately, some of the technology that will be flying on the Mars helicopter was developed at early stages at Houghton Crater. We look at spacesuits. The main issue is that they're too heavy right now for Mars. So we're working with uh, Collins Aerospace, the uh, contractor for NASA life support systems uh, since the Apollo program, essentially, when they were called Hamilton Sunstrand is, is working with us on these. Uh, this might be what the Mars spacesuit will look like. It's a hard upper torso because you need to be uh, prepared for a lot of wear and tear. Uh, so if you're using a soft spacesuit with a hard upper, with a soft upper torso, you, you should uh, transition to a hard upper torso. We think it's going to be very important. Uh, for To get around uh, unpressurized, in unpressurized modes, an ATV is what we're recommending for, for Mars and also for the moon. Uh, in large part because your ATV can become a mobile life portable life support system and therefore offload some of the mass of your backpack. The large batteries and the large oxygen tanks that you have in your backpack can be put on the ATV. And so you recharge while you're riding and you uh, step off and walk around with lighter batteries, lighter, ba lighter oxygen tanks, and therefore you have a lighter spacesuit, which is critical for Mars. Uh, your ATVs are also robotic, so they can come with you on traverses. We have a concept of surface operations that we are uh, advocating for the moon and Mars. Uh, the moon has more options, but for Mars, it's definitely, I think, how we want to do things, which uh, is evolved from Apollo and, and goes beyond, of course. Uh, for longer road trips, pressurized rovers, we have two Humvees. This is the red one, the Mars one. This is the yellow one, the Ocarian, which we drove across the Northwest Passage. Uh, if you want to see how that expedition went, how we used space, how to design the interior better than the one we had, uh, I would recommend you waste some time watching this movie, uh, Passage to Mars. It's available, I think, on uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, there, uh, in recent times, we are focusing on how astronauts can interact with robotic systems, in particular fly drones. This is a astronaut smart glove technology that we are testing right now, which is allowing you to fly drill, not with your two hands on a joystick and your eyes glued to a screen, but by just hand waving a single hand, uh, the drone does what you do. If you want to check this out, I'll show you a, a link at the end. We're also working on ice caves in Iceland. I don't have time to go into a lot of details, but there are caves on Mars and on the moon, which we think have, have ice in them, some of them, not most of them, some of them uh, in rare occasions. And there are very few caves on Earth where there is ice, lava tubes where there is ice. 
uh, and where there's ice in massive amounts. And so this is the case in this one in Iceland and we're, we're using that to, as an analog. Uh, we did the first mapping of a lava tube and ice cave with a drone uh, just a couple years ago and you're seeing some of the LIDAR scans. Uh, we are offering a fellowship every year now at our Halton Mars project. If you have a, a strong resume as a student or as a recent graduate, uh, please communicate with me and uh, your, you might have an opportunity to join our research. This is very important for us to have students uh, who will stay in the aerospace business uh, or planetary science to, to get to do field work at this, at this site. Uh, and just as a human being to another human being, all of you, I, I will hope you have all one day a chance to come to Devon Island because it's an incredible, it's an incredible place. So here are some links which you can view later in detail. And that's it. That's it for me. Thank you. <laughs> thank, thank, thank you so much, Pascal. Uh, you are the uh, explorer uh, in all of us. Uh, <laughs> wish we could do all of these things that you do every day. Uh, uh, I think we have run out of time. Am I right, uh, Ken? Yeah, well, we have the panel session, so don't worry. We could be, we we I hope you stay with us, uh, Pascal, oh, because we have good. Some good discussions later. Thank you so much. I'll be back for the panel. Yeah, thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, okay, we are on to our next uh, presenter. The next should be uh, Hank. Oh, great. Uh, Hank, are we are we ready? Hello, Hank. I see he has his... Uh... He's probably away from his desk. Oh, let me see. He... Hello, Hank. Whoa. Yeah, he was there. We saw him. <laughs> I know he was here momentarily. On the moon already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Angelo is here, but I'm just afraid Hank came back. He could be confused. Yeah. Otherwise, Angelo is here. I, I see Angelo too. Angelo uh, is the next one. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yes, I'm here. I'm ready. Do you want me to? Um... Uh, hold on, give, wait for Hank. give me one okay. more minute. Just, just give me uh, this one. I call him. <laughs> Hello, Hank. <laughs> Let oh, me you're see. calling him. Perfect. <laughs> I, I'll text him too. He's gonna. Yeah, he's yeah, gonna yeah. get a shot. Yeah. <sighs> oh, he's oh, there back. he is. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, greetings, Hank. How are you? Hello, it's showtime. <laughs> oh, is it my turn? Are you serious? Yes, yes. No, I. I... <laughs> you just, you right. just lost three minutes I of your time. I, I, thought, I thought we had um, uh, high seas before this. But anyway, um, my name is Hank Rogers. Um, um, I'm going to talk about my concept of how to build a moon base, um, a little bit about my background. Um, 
So 15 years ago, gosh, it's 15 years ago. Yeah, 15 years ago, I found my missions in life. And mission number three is to make a backup of life by going to other planets. Um, I, ever since then, I've been going to, uh, how can I say, space exploration related um, uh, conferences. We used to have this thing in Hawaii called uh, Just Sap. When it was Japan, US, it was NASA and JAXA get together every year. Um, they came up with the concept of Pisces, the Pacific International Space Center for Exploration Systems. Um, and it's gone through several iterations. Um, it does interesting research. Um, and it's, it's also in the business of trying to develop the uh, aerospace industry in Hawaii. Um, it, for some reason, in a moment of weakness, I joined them, their board. And in a greater moment of weakness, I accepted uh, uh, becoming the chair of, of Pisces. So I'm kind of responsible. Um, high seas, uh, high seas, I see Angelo, he was the first crew in, in high seas. Um, a researcher from UH came to me one day and, and said, we have a problem. And uh, I said, what's, what's going on? So he said, well, we have this idea to build a, um, a research station where, we, where we're going to research Mars missions and both NASA and the University of Hawaii just figured out that neither of them could own a habitat. So um, she asked me to step in and I did. So now I, I'm the proud owner of a habitat on the slopes of Mauna Loa, high seas. I'm, I'm guessing that uh, we have another speaker later because I, 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 um, Michaela Musilova is in charge of, of high seas at this point in time. Um, Fast forward, uh, we, yeah, we actually did five missions, uh, four months, four months, eight months, 12 months, uh, and eight months. So, uh, and these were basically how to, uh, missions to figure out how people get along for such a long period of time. Because the, the, the actual mission to Mars is going to be eight months to go, uh, six months to wait while the Earth comes around another, another eight months to come back. So that's 22 months. Um, we found out a lot of things uh, about crew selection. <laughs> well, NASA did anyway. I, I, I wasn't part of that. Um, then I um, kind of made a pivot. And the, the pivot was, you know, if we're going to go to Mars, we're going to have to go to the moon first. And so um, I started thinking about this and I made my own conference called, and I called it the International Moon Base Summit. And a bunch of people smarter than me got together and I learned a lot about what the prevailing thinking was about how to build a moon base. Um, at that time, I was actually thinking that we were going to have to use uh, in-situ resource utilization, which I still think we will eventually do, but um, it's, been, it's become clear to me that there's going to be three phases of, of how to build a moon base. Phase one, and I have a little video that I'm going to show after this. In fact, I might as well do that now. Uh, let's see, I got to share my screen and I've got to go to where here. Wait a minute, before I do that, I should just set it up. Sorry about that, folks. Uh, yes. Okay. Now I can share screen. Uh, there it is. Oh, that's not it. Why does it have to be so complicated? Here we go. 
I'm screen sharing and play slideshow. All right, so um, <clears throat> Mahina is a Hawaiian word for uh, moon. And I'm planning to call our first base on the moon, which I'm, I hope to have built, be, been built by uh, 2030. Uh, I'm planning to call it Mahina Lani, which means uh, moon heaven. Um, and it's 2030. Okay. So here we go. Can you hear music? It's working. Wow. Yes, yes, we can. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, so my, my guys, uh, my modelers are out of Ball State University, and uh, they have modeled the moon using NASA data. And we're flying to Shackleton Crater. And here's our first 150-ton uh, payload landing on the moon. Uh, I've, I've been talking to SpaceX, and um, they told me that they're uh, they could land me 150 tons on the moon and fly back without refueling. So first of all, um, we're looking at uh, phase, phase one. And a phase one moon base is uh, modules that are manufactured on Earth and then transported uh, to the lunar surface as is, uh, in the same way that ISS modules are, were uh, sent to low Earth orbit. orbit. Um, we would need and this is all NASA stuff at this point. This is their, um, their athlete. Um, and it moves the modules around. Obviously, you have to move the modules from the landing site to the build site. Or when, when the rocket takes off, you will destroy all of your stuff that you left behind on the moon. Um, so um, here we have the build site. And this is the first module that's been put in place. Uh, according to NASA, there's a little inflatable part of it. So we got a module with an inflatable, and then we we will be added. So this is all phase one, where we where we have all these modules that um, were built on Earth, and they're just connected on the Moon. Um, phase two is more interesting to me at this point. <clears throat> um, you know, my experience from uh, high seas and well, I. I you could say I've been fascinated by domes for a long time. A dome, a geodesic dome, is the most efficient way to, um, to enclose space. So I actually, uh, you know, I've seen lots of different designs for moon base modules, whatever you want to call them, structures. But I think that the basic structure is going to be a dome. Um, so uh, we, uh, I let my modelers go wild, and they um, uh, they created this device to actually build a moon base uh, a module. Sorry. First of all, we need uh, a way to move the things, the the parts, and in this case, they're all triangles away from the the rocket to the build site. Um, there is the build site, and is that the the base has already been built, um, and this was. Um, <laughs> this was their idea of how this thing was going to get built. And um, obviously, uh, this is not going to work. I told them this is not going to work because um, I'm going to attach this thing from the get-go. And I don't want to have to build a track. And But it was still cute enough so that I thought you might enjoy this part. The actual way to build this, I think, is going to be a crane. And um, we have to work out the order in which the triangles get put in place. 
I um, tracked down the number one dome builder at Burning Man. Um, he's, he built 35 domes. Um, what's going on now? Okay. So uh, this, is, this is a little closer. So we have a, um, I asked them to, to uh, get me a crane and they copied the Canada spatial uh, arm as a crane. And so this is how I think the actual thing is going to be built. And the, the thing on the left is the NASA airlock. Um, so I'm looking for engineers who want to take on the challenge of designing this thing so that we can actually build something on the moon. Um, we started, you know, all the domes at Burning Man are made out of struts and then the triangles are added afterwards. And I, I said, no, let's not do it that way because that means two different kinds of build. One is for the struts and one's for the triangles. Um, so I'm in the, in the triangles, I'm including the struts so that they're internal to the, to the panels. And then uh, <clears throat> we need to find a way probably from the inside to bolt them together. Um, and so that's another bit that needs to be uh, designed is the locking me mechanism. So here we have dome number one, dome number two, and this is gonna be a continuous uh, operation. Even after we occupy the moon base, the robots are gonna continuously uh, build uh, domes and in the future we'll need larger dome. I don't think it's going to be much larger than this for growing food. So um, I still don't, I still don't have a, an answer to growing food on uh, on the moon. But that you know I'm I'm imagining that we're going to have uh, larger domes uh, and robots again robots um, are going to be do, doing the uh, the work of growing the food. Um, <clears throat> In my organization, Pisces, the guy who runs it, his name is Rodrigo Romo. He spent uh, eight months, six, six or eight months in the Biosphere 2. And he told me that eight people spend pretty much all their time growing food and they were always hungry. Excuse me, Hank. I yeah? speak Hank, five minutes. Okay. Yeah, I'm pretty close to the end of my presentation. So, um, yeah, this is us leaving, leaving the moon, going back to, um, going back to Earth. So, I think that we should be getting ready to do this on Earth. So, I'm going to build one build a 40-foot dome at my ranch. It's not going to have any windows. Um, we are going to practice different situations inside. We've already have the situation of, of uh, crew quarters and living space in high seas, but I'd like to see how much space we need for engineering bay, for, uh, I don't know, for all the different activities that we would imagine that we would do um, on the moon. And um, I hear Pascal loud and clear, we need storage space. <laughs> so there we go. Um, 
Let's see. Yeah, I have a little uh, bonus uh, pictures. Let's see. This is a regular sim simulant. Uh, this is a, a project we did in, in Pisces where we made pavers. Uh, this is uh, the early just to see. Um, the, it turns out that the lava rock of the Big Island is 96% the same as the, um, <clears throat> as the uh, lunar regolith. And so we heated the, the, the um, simulant to a certain temperature that caused it to center and become solid. And we made uh, these pavers. And this is, um, uh, this is a design by NASA. They're, they're interlocking pavers. So the idea was to place a bunch of them uh, using our rover uh, into a landing site. And uh, then we, we attached a rocket <laughs> to see how it would work. And uh, this is the rocket going off. Well, the result of it um, is that the pavers didn't stay locked together. So they went flying. So uh, this is probably not how we're going to build a, um, a landing spot on the moon. Let's see. Stop share. There you go. All right. So I'm ready for questions. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Hank. Uh, there is nothing uh, more clear uh, than visuals to tell people what uh, you plan to do. Uh, now, I think we uh, run out of time, um, but uh, please stay on. We will have some pointed questions for you come uh, your panel time and don't run away, please. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, we are going to uh, Angelo. Angelo, please. Hi. Uh, let me share my screen. Okay. All right. Can you see my first slide? Not yet. Nope, not yet. I am. I thought I was sharing. Let's try again. Share screen. Here you go. Share. There it is. You can yeah. go full screen if you like. Of course. <clears throat> All right. Um, hi, everyone. I see quite a few familiar faces here. Hank, hi. Good to see you again. It's been such a long time. I need to go back to Hawaii after this pandemic is over. Um, and many other people here that I know. Um, today I'm going to give a brief presentation about basically about some of my experiences during high seas and how they could impact the future design of space analogs. And we're also going to talk a bit about uh, the work that I personally do. I am, I'm actually a space systems researcher at Delft University of Technology. Uh, I'm also a biologist and I'm a visual artist. And I, um, I, combine, uh, I combine these fields. I participated in the very first high seas mission that was uh, set up in 2013. I was the crew commander of the first mission. We were living with six people for four months inside the habitat. Uh, as Hank indicated, high seas is a program uh, that was uh, mostly focused or is mostly focused on uh, investigating the effect of long-term isolation on crew dynamics um, and on individual psychology. So psycho it's, it's really a kind of a, an, an uh, human factors kind of oriented uh, program. Um, in preparation for this, uh, I also participated in a uh, mission at, the, at MDRS, the Mars Desert Research Station. Uh, we stayed there for two weeks as a preparation, like I said, for uh, high seas. 
Um, so today what I want to present to you, like I said, is a few lessons that I learned uh, from living in the habitat and how they could be useful for architects. Uh, since this was an architecture meeting, I'm going to talk a little bit about designing ecosystems and then concluding with some of my current work. Now, the first thing um, in designing uh, uh, analogs are, uh, is, of course, real, is the issue of realism. And I really love to juxtapose these images from science fiction with actual reality. Um, on the left-hand side, you see this famous iconic image from 2001 A Space Odyssey with absolutely fabulous interior design. And on the right-hand side, that's actual life in space. You, could, you can see that there is really, it's just completely the opposite. And this is really a, a, core, a core challenge for designing uh, analog uh, stations for architects and designers like many of you. Um, you have, of course, there's a tendency to make things really slick and sleek. Uh, because we're, our imaginary is very much inspired by science fiction, but then the reality calls for very different things. And it's not like I have a solution here, but it's just an interesting thing to raise uh, for the people that are involved in, 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 in space architecture. Uh, one of the things, and actually one of the things that I discussed with Hank, I remember this very well before the start of the first mission, is how to organize the workspace and the impact it has on crew cohesion. And my, my, my statement here would really be that it is important to, um, as a designer, as an architect, to take into account that the architecture may have a huge impact on crew cohesion. And it's really one of the core psychological and social issues, um, apart from the medical issues, for example, is cohesion and crew cohesion. And many uh, simulation missions, it has been observed that after several months, um, at least one person starts to dissociate himself or herself from the crew, and gradually other people might um, distance themselves from the group. And this is not what you want, obviously. Um, there is even there is empirical proof that when a crew shows high levels of cohesion, that they're more productive. Um, but also when, and this is typical for space exploration, when something unusual happens, a surprise or some some. Um, some malfunction, that entire crew has to operate as one unit instantaneously. If people have been living separately for weeks or months, and then they have to come together to solve a problem, um, that's going to be much more tricky. And, and, and thirdly, uh, crew cohesion is also important, of course, for individual well-being. So focusing on crew cohesion is really important. And architecture can have a huge impact on that. With the wrong architecture, you can really drive, you can, you can, how to put it, you can, you can stimulate people from moving away from each other while with the right architecture, in my, my personal opinion is about uh, having an overview of the, of the people and being in visual contact with people enough to feel connected to them. Next slide. Privacy is of course another classic, um, let me go back. Uh, classic discussion point in designing uh, space habitats and analog habitats. In high seas, we did get our individual uh, rooms, and I remember very much, very well that this was this was this was really a, a very much appreciated. To at the end of the day, to have a little bit space on your own. These were very small rooms, but the size doesn't really matter that much. It's just the idea that at a certain point in time, you could just go to your room and close the door and have some personal time. Um, now, of course, this is there is a risk that this goes against um, the crew cohesion aspect that I just talked about. And it's really a kind of balancing act between those two. How much cohesion do you want and how much privacy do you want to, uh, do you, do you want to, uh, uh, to allow? Because of course, by 
offering these individual rooms, you might develop a crew culture where every individual person is just running to their, uh, just staying in their room, working and only coming out to get some fruit from the fridge and going back to the room. And that, that's not the goal of having those private spaces, of course. So it's a really interesting balancing act there. Secondly, what I really liked about the high seas habitat is the idea of being able to move vertically. Basically, most of the operations, almost all the operations happened on ground floor. There was an open space, there is still an open space where people work, where people exercise, where cooking happens, you know, all the, all the daily activities. But at the end of the day, being able to walk up the stairs um, and go to your room, it's like you can close off the day. And it, so there is, once again, this psychological impact of particular architectural and uh, design choices. Windows, Hank just talked about it, how he's planning to build a new dome on his ranch in, in Hawaii uh, without windows. And yes, the windows are quite an interesting discussion. I remember the first, um, well, the first month of our mission, we did not have a window and then a porthole, one single porthole window was installed. And honestly, actually, it, I, I thought it was gonna be really difficult to live without a window. I'm a visual artist as well and a photographer. And I was like, probably I'm very sensitive about being able to look outside every now and then, but actually it worked out quite well. I didn't really miss it. Now, whenever, when the window was installed, of course we loved it. No, I mean, that, that's, that was pretty clear. And for example, the ways in which we used the window was by positioning the treadmill in such a way that when you were running on the treadmill, you were actually looking outside. So it was almost like you were running outside through the landscape with a little bit of imagination. Now, the thing is, um, probably habitats are going to be covered on the moon and on Mars. If you look at some of the recent designs by space architects, uh, especially using local resources, um, the habitats on the moon and Mars will be covered with a thick layer of regolith to protect it from micrometeorite impacts and mostly from radiation. So having windows in those circumstances and in general because of the radiation, having windows in a habitat on the moon or Mars is probably not very realistic. But nevertheless, having that idea of being able to look outside is important. So probably we'll move to, um, to cameras and high definition screens uh, just to give an impression of the outside landscape. And I think I also talked about this uh, once again uh, with, with Hank before. Um, Next slide, sunlight. Yeah, light, of course, is a key component in, 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 in providing, uh, how, to, how to put it, in, in making sure that people stay, um, their biorhythm stays in check. And in high seas, the, the, the membrane is actually relatively translucent, uh, which gives you an idea of day and night, which I think really helps to stay in sync with, um, you know, with your own, with your, to make sure that your biorhythm stays in sync. Um, one of the observations that we did during our mission was there is this particular part in the high seas habitat. It's the connection. I'm not sure how it looks like now. It's probably different than when I uh, lived there. But in my time, when I was uh, living there, the connection between uh, high seas habitat consists of a dome and of a uh, container, the sea can next to it. And the connection between the two was a thinner kind of construction. And so there was more light penetrating through that area. And very quickly, people started moving the sofa, one of the sofas there to do some of their work, just to bathe in the light, especially when the sun was out and, and it really was the most light spot. So it just indicates how sensitive people are uh, for lighting. And there are interesting ways in which we can improve the lighting conditions in these habitats. And what I'm personally interested in is kind of simulating uh, solar light and not just by changing LED, not by using LED, not just by using LED light with a particular color shift, but really 
by changing slowly during the day, having a rhythm where the intensity moves up and down and where the light is actually moving. So the shadows are moving in the space. And you have this idea that there's somehow light beaming through some, uh, some part of the, of the habitat. And there's actually a, a lighting that exists like this that you can install in, in, in places. So it's, it's not something- This is Angelo, uh, four minutes. Yes. Um, the last, the last thing that I want to mention is what is important in designing these analog mission and analog stations is maintenance. You don't want a very complicated structure that requires a lot of maintenance. Not too many crooks, crook, uh, not too many um, spaces are difficult uh, to maintain. So going for simplicity, I think, is really key because you don't want to waste your time on on maintenance. Now. Uh, during my mission, also grew some sprouts. Um, this was part of we were doing a, a food study. This became a part of the food study at the end of the mission, and I was really interested to see if anybody in the crew liked the fact that some creatures, plants, were growing in the habitat. And actually, two of the crew members were like, "We don't care at all," which was very surprising to me because there is this idea of biophilia, which means that people are um, subconsciously drawn to nature, and I, I do believe in that. Um, so I do believe in bringing in the elements of ecology and biology in a habitat uh, because of its, um, its, its positive impact on, um, on well-being. Now, it goes using plants in a habitat and also in, a, in, a, in an analog uh, structure goes beyond just because it's psychologically interesting. There's this whole concept of biological life support. I'm running out of time. I won't be able to explain this in detail, but the idea that you use bacteria and plants to recycle human waste and to grow food again in a circular system. And for example, European Space Agency has a lot of expertise on this with the Melissa program, and I've been working with them for uh, quite a number of years. Now, one of the misconceptions that you often see is that uh, greenhouses will be built on the surface of the moon or Mars, which is probably not gonna happen for, a mult for multiple reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is because of radiation. It's just too difficult to protect uh, people and the plants inside from radiation, but also micrometeorite impacts on the moon, for example. And in general, a growth chamber is a way better way to grow plants because you can really tightly control the growth of your plants. For example, using light recipes with LED, uh, LED lighting. Now, personally, and this, this concludes my talk, currently I'm working on bio-inspired engineering, basically architecture that develops itself. And I'm working on concepts at Delft University of Technology to transform asteroids into hybrid spaceships, spacecraft, by mining the asteroid and then gradually 3D printing architecture uh, extending from the asteroid. The idea is that the architecture develops itself during the mission because this offers possibilities for robust systems that can handle uncertainty, which is typical for deep space missions. So instead of trying to design everything beforehand, you give the architecture its own agency uh, to develop itself over time. And this is what we're exploring in computer models. And of course, it brings up the question where the role of the architect would be in these future systems. And that concludes my presentation. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Angelo. Again, um, it, it's a pleasure to see um, the visuals. And to me, uh, more importantly, the, um, the, uh, the psychology that goes into, um, uh, into the interactions uh, between, uh, uh, between members. And it's very, very critical. Thank you.
questions? Any other questions? Uh, we got two minutes before our next speaker goes on, I think. I have a question for Angelo. Uh, Go for it. Angelo, so do you have some opportunity of precursor life science uh, symbiotic experiment uh, to the moon? Um, and in relation to my, my current research, or uh, I'm not sure. I yes, I wonder because I mean, before we have a full uh, life support system, and but uh, some early concept of uh, you know ecosystem. Uh, the, do, do you well, see that there are, are you looking at some opportunities? Yeah, well, actually, at uh, International Space University, I've been teaching, and I had a, I developed a workshop which is which is called "Design Your Own Regenerative Ecosystem," because there are so many <laughs> options, there are so many options, and so many organisms. And very interestingly, depending on which culture you come from, um, people have different insights in which kind of insects or which kind of plants are really providing interesting nutrients. And so there. You really have to look at a at a at a, at a biological life support system as a modular system, and you can just connect different organisms with each other, bacteria, plants, insects, for example, and then try to close those loops. So actually, I don't have a specific program, but I do have a methodology to figure out potential systems. Okay, yeah, because either we had a call for ideas for experiment for a lander, a cargo lander, but uh, uh, I think some precursor life life support ah, okay. system or just. The science of ecosystem uh, could be flown before we have the full life support system for humans. Thank, yeah, step by you. step, officer. Yeah, uh, thank you, Bernard. We'll we'll discuss this beautiful thing in the panel. I assure you. Okay, we are on to our next speaker. Thank you, Angelo. Bob, you're ready to go. Oh, you're you're muted. Good. All right. All right. So uh, thank you for inviting me to this event. Um, space architecture tends to break down into two categories of activity. One is how to design habitats uh, for relatively near-term missions to make them as livable as possible, uh, to create productive environments for astronauts on a space station or in a base on the moon or Mars. Uh, and the other is uh, uh, a more imaginative, but a, a more distant realm of application, which is how do we design cities on uh, Mars and things of this sort? How, how do we create um, environments that people will want to inhabit? Um, not just astronaut explorers who frankly can put up with almost anything, um, but you know, that will attract immigrants to want to live in a Martian city-state. Um, and, 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 and that's, of course, a much broader thing. And then one could imagine how one evolves from a, a Spartan Mars base um, to a Mars city. Um, now, the Mars Society has attempted to address both of these areas. Um, we uh, have been a leader in um, the initiation of Mars analog uh, uh, research, Mars exploration analog research. Uh, and it was our uh, Mars Arctic Research Station on Devon Island and then the Mars Desert Research Station in Utah. Um, at this point, we have done uh, something like 240 
uh, simulated uh, expeditions to one or another of these stations. Uh, over a thousand people have participated in one crew or another, and in some cases in several different crews. Most crews have been two weeks in duration in which we tasked them to try to do a sustained program of field exploration while operating under as many Mars mission constraints as we can impose within the limits of our resources. Some have been as long as three months. Um, and so th this um, activity, uh, and which has uh, uh, um, sparked others, for instance, the people who began the, the Hawaiian uh, uh, Mars uh, Analog Research Station activity, the high seas, uh, were graduates of our program, the, the one in Israel, the one in Austria, um, and, and, and so on. Uh, so other people have, have taken this and uh, launched other programs using their own ideas. And we, we view this uh, as something great. Uh, my fondest ambition would be for NASA with its much larger resources to say, okay, we're gonna now do this. We're gonna do it right. We're gonna have uh, a, a much more uh, uh, high fidelity uh, Mars desert or Mars Arctic research station and we will task crews and 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 I think this is how the the uh, crew of a real Mars mission should be chosen that is they should create three very high fidelity Mars Arctic research stations take three very promising crews put one in each one task them to do a six month long uh, 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 program of field exploration under rigorously enforced uh, Mars analog uh, operational conditions and see which team does the best. And that's the team sent to Mars because this is a team sport. One thing that we have found in our missions given uh, the very large number of them is for example, uh, individuals who did very well, uh, who were towers of strength as uh, crew members in one crew were problem crew members in another uh, because the chemistry was wrong. So you really can't, I mean, there are certain things you can select for, for individuals. You obviously want people with skills uh, in either uh, scientific or engineering areas, um, for example. But what you really need beyond that is a team that will hold together, that will work together, you know, um, one for one, uh, one for all and all for one, you know, musketeers. Okay, the people that go to Mars will probably be called musketeers. Uh, the, um, and uh, uh, for two reasons, um, one relating to Musk and one relating to the spirit of the Musketeers. Uh, in any case, um, the, but, you know, I think that these sorts of stations can have a, a great role in helping to choose uh, uh, the, the Mars mission crew and helping to develop the field tactics before we go to Mars. Um, we're not training astronauts in these stations, certainly not at the level of fidelity of our current stations. Uh, but we're trying to figure out how they should be trained. Uh, we're trying uh, to, to basically write the book or contribute to writing the book on field tactics. And, that, and, and then, of course, we're also finding out things about architecture, finding out what is a livable architecture. Now, our uh, Mars HABs, both the one in the desert and the Arctic, are both uh, designs that are based really on the, the, what I set forth in my Mars Direct Plan back in 1990 of these uh, eight meter diameter tuna can hams with two decks of uh, living quarters on the upper deck and uh, lab and workshop space on, on, on the lower deck. And actually it works pretty good. Um, and there really is no problem supporting a crew of six in uh, such stations. Um, it's a good design. 
and one could land these on Mars and their your house and lab on Mars. And that's and then if you want a larger base, you can land a bunch of them and link them up. Um, and and I think this is a, a way to conduct an initial Mars mission and, and an initial Mars base. But beyond that, you know, what are we going for? Okay, yes, we're going to Mars to explore, and human explorers can do far more on, on Mars than we can do with robotic rovers. Uh, and I, I believe they're essential. Uh, but of course, the, the, the true goal here is transforming humanity into a multi-planet spacefaring species. And that means cities on Mars. Now, the Mars Society recently held a series of design contests to design first a 1,000 person uh, Mars base and then a 1 million person Mars city-state. And the latter contest, um, extremely interesting. Uh, we had 176 teams enter um, and we did a series of down selects to 10 finalists who presented their designs at the um, uh, Mars International uh, Teleconvention that we held in October. And if you wanna see the presentations of the finalists, they're still available on our uh, YouTube channel. You can go and, and watch these talks uh, that these teams gave. And, um, and, and in terms of the design of these Mars city-states, we had 30 points for the technical merit of the design, 30 for the, the economic concepts for uh, uh, supporting such a thing, uh, 20 for the social and political aspects of, of, of what is being proposed and 20 for the aesthetics. Um, and uh, you know, just looking at it from the outside, of course, the aesthetics are extremely interesting because you don't want to be living in you know, some steampunk anti-utopia. You want people living in beautiful cities on, on Mars. And some of these teams came up with in, incredibly uh, imaginative ideas just to cite one of uh, what was in fact the winning team and, and not just for this, but for many other uh, very positive features of their design. Um, they designed their system to have water shielding above the colony, which was transparent and liquid in which that's where their fish farms were. So living in this city, if you looked up, you would see the fish swimming above you and you have substantial water shielding here um, completely shielding out the cosmic rays without being in a dark tunnel or anything. And the, the uh, so you have natural sunlight coming in, natural sunlight illuminating fish farms in which there's also kelp and all this other good stuff that you can grow aquatically. And having all this matter above you uh, puts the whole structure in uh, compression. And if you have a structure that's in compression, you can build a structure out of, um, uh, the, the, if you will, primitive material, stone, uh, uh, brick. Uh, you know, all of ancient engineering, Roman engineering is based on structures in compression uh, because they had the very little uh, steel and other things that are strong in tension available to them. And it, it's very easy to create building materials that are strong in, in compression. Uh, and um, so, and you don't want to have, now eventually, of course, we're going to make steel on Mars, uh, but it's a lot easier to make brick on Mars, um, just as it is on, on Earth. And so there were these incredible ideas. And also, I, I must say, um, the aesthetics of these places that these people came up with were just remarkable. I mean, some of these cities 
uh, looked like Rome. And by that, I don't mean the classical buildings and, you know, and, and all this. I mean the back streets um, of actual Rome, you know, in, 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 in the cool places to go in Rome and, the, 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 and, and other, uh, you know, Renaissance cities. Uh, that th these were architectural concepts that were brought into the game. And, and I think this is really important because look, space colonies will grow if and only if people want to go there to live. Uh, and uh, there are a number of aspects to that. Um, the extreme labor shortage in space colonies will entail higher wages. And that was one of the things of course that brought people to America um, and, and, and so forth, but also just, uh, and, and, and you'll wanna have a higher level of freedom. This is why this uh, idea that extraterrestrial colonies will be unfree is wrong because an unfree extraterrestrial colony cannot grow. No one will go there. Okay, so from a Darwinian point of view, um, the um, extraterrestrial cities that maximize the opportunity for human beings to develop and exercise their full potential, i.e. the maximum freedom, uh, those are the ones that will attract colonists and grow. People who attempt unfree colonies will fail because people won't go there. Um, Sweet, Dr. Zubin, uh, four minutes. Okay. And, and then finally, though, yes, aesthetics. We have to be thinking of the aesthetics uh, of these things. And, you know, other people, I mentioned the, the rooftop aquariums, uh, had ideas for cliff-faced colonies. And, you know, you don't need to block out all radiation. You just need to limit the dose to where um, it is not particularly harmful. And um, if you have, if you're on the side of a cliff and you have windows looking out on the terrain, the, 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 yes, some cosmic rays can come in that way, but they're coming obliquely through the atmosphere and uh, where there's actually tremendous shielding uh, uh, from, uh, in other words, going straight down through the Mars atmosphere from space, there's only 16 grams per square centimeter of shielding, uh, which is actually comparable to a solar flare storm shelter. But if you average over the two pi steradians of the sky, it's 65 grams, it's like two feet of water. And if you only let in the oblique angles, then it, it's like four or five feet of water and, and, and it's, it, it's, it, it's serious shielding. So we can think of, of, of space architecture in this way in which you, you know, relax your constraint about wanting to block out every single cosmic ray in order to create a truly livable environment, okay? Because that's what people want and that's what people are going to demand. So I'll leave it there. Thank, thank you, Bob. <laughs> you always amaze us with uh, interesting new thoughts and the uh, uh, radiation is a biggie. We know that. And uh, we're still struggling to find a way to put people uh, in transit between Earth and Mars without being irradiated. And I know you have some thoughts on it, but um, any questions for Bob? Uh, uh, you know, we can, uh, how many minutes we got, Ken? Uh, oh, I think we, we have two minutes left. <laughs> we are over time. But uh, Bob, will you stay on for uh, our panel? Please do. When, when is the panel? Um... Oh, it's coming up very, very soon. Uh, uh, Ken, uh, we are down to two more speakers? Uh, yeah, two more. Uh, I, I think uh, Mikola, Mikola was around 12.40, so the panel will be around 12.50. 12.50. Oh, God, okay. 
Well, we, we, I, we, we want you, Bob. Go have some lunch or something and come back, please. All right, I will. All right, thank okay, you thank very you. much. Thank you very much. Okay, uh, we are on to our next speaker. Yeah, Barbara, go ahead. Okay, thanks. I, I wasn't uh, sure. Good, uh, good evening. I have to say, actually, um, I've been uh, there's so many people <laughs> I know. <laughs> Barbara is uh, talking to us from Vienna, beautiful Vienna. Yeah, where the, where the music never stops. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, yes. Uh, thanks, Amado, for organizing and uh, and, uh, and 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 inviting uh, me. Also, thanks to Ken. Uh, hello, uh, all the people I know. Um, I'll talk a little bit about um, uh, liquifers engagement uh, in uh, simulators um, or designing simulators and uh, participating in simulations or organizing co-organizing simulations. Um, my name is Barbara Imhoff. I'm a space architect and I've been working in that area for quite some time. Um, I'll present uh, very briefly um, four projects, some a little bit more into detail, some just um, as a snapshot. Um, there, will, there are projects which were um, financed by the European Framework Program and we had um, different kinds of participation in that uh, designing tools or uh, the whole uh, simulator uh, or um, just we also were writing procedures so all different kinds of um, um, of activities i'd like to just say that um, there are all different kinds of uh, simulations here so you see here this was um, a simulation in an artificial environment um, between you know cooperation between two rovers was called faster then there were the moonwalk uh, simulation missions at uh, two different kinds one was uh, underwater uh, with uh, one six gravity a lunar simulation uh, human robot collaboration and then there was a more um, complex um, well that was complex enough but um, you know an, another simulation for a Mars um, way of um, pro-acting, pro-enacting in advance training uh, for a Mars mission. And that was in Rio Tinto in the south of Spain, where we also had the she habitat as a simulator test bed incorporated, and then a simulation uh, of the Eden ISS greenhouse. So we have um, components, infrastructure, uh, we have scenarios, so it could be just a single event, let's say the cooperation of two rovers, or it could be multiple events where, you know, of different kinds of uh, infrastructures or tools come together and a real um, mission is being simulated. Um, then there are all different kinds of operations are derived and this is what we actually want to find out. What does it take to uh, do this task or do this kind of mission in um, during 
these simulations. And then there are different kinds of settings. There's an artificial environment um, or also natural, different natural analogs. So there are an immense variety. And the more complex the simulations get, the more people are involved. So you see here, these are also from different, this is the more Rio Tinto section. This is the mission control of the Eden ISS um, greenhouse in, actually this is in, in Bremen and uh, then the greenhouse went to Antarctica. And you also see that, especially for uh, underwater simulations, you need a lot of divers and um, security divers and, um, and you always have, you know, a lot of tools to repair things uh, which, um, you know, you know, go, um, don't function, uh, malfunction in between. And, um, and then you also need diff and also user centers, remote uh, user centers uh, to simulate a, a fully fledged uh, sim um, mission simulation. So this was faster. It's interesting because this is a completely artificial environment. It's a Mars simulator or simulation test site at, in Stevenage, UK at, with Airbus. So you'll see it was basically about the cooperation of these two rovers. We were um, um, creating, designing a wheeled bevermeter, which is to ensure a better trafficability. And uh, here was the, the mission control center. So it was in a very controlled environment and, and specific tasks could be simulated. So it was about operations procedures, but also the developed technology. And another sort of artificial environment, more controlled is for example, a pool uh, when you want to go, let's say for one six gravity. Um, this was the, the moonwalk pre-trials in the COMEX pool. And then when you go to the actual sea, you need a lot of infrastructure. I think Pascal Lee was talking about that or mentioning this. So for the moonwalk underwater simulations, we started off with a sort of lander where you could, uh, it was a suit port suit, a COMEX suit, um, which where you could enter. And then this was how you would start actually um, and um, the, the, the mission operations. The human robot cooperation, it was a small helper rover which could do, um, which could carry stuff and do some small tasks. And it was uh, steered by um, gesture control system. And different kinds of scenarios were developed um, and uh, these were then also brought into uh, the Mars uh, mission simulation. What was interesting is that you see the murky water that actually when you're diving under these conditions, it's really a little bit, you know, it becomes even more dangerous. And uh, one uh, mission simulation, one small unit we had to interrupt because one of the security divers, not this one here, but another one, but this is a security diver, was actually, um, uh, he, he was um, too challenged uh, in this uh, situation and, and he had to come up. So the whole simulation was actually um, interrupted and had to be redone. So it's psychologically quite challenging. You also can see that here, this was a, um, we compared human robot collaboration with human human uh, cooperation. Um, so, but you also see that the visibility was very poor and that just creates a more isolated feeling um, for the protagonists. Then uh, in Rio Tinto, 
um, we added the she habitat as an element. So we had a larger um, multiple event uh, simulation comprising of these uh, three elements. The she habitat is the self-deployable habitat for extreme environments. It was um, a unique uh, testbed or is a unique testbed because it's deployable uh, and it has a configuration one could use as a first outpost um, on the moon or on Mars. You see that it was quite challenging from an architectural point of view to provide private spaces and uh, gathering spaces, workspaces, uh, hygiene and um, a sort of workshop or wet bench for a maintenance work and to design it such that this could be sort of stowed and folded into this small configuration. And Angelo very vividly showed, okay, the, what is, you know, what is the, the actual design? You see here the, the first pictures taken with the finished uh, simulator of these areas that I described below. And then when you go uh, into simulations, you'll just see it'll, it'll look very different. Here you see how it's um, being transported. So this is how it got to Rio Tinto. And then here you see when reality kicks in, the workspace became an astrobiology laboratory on the left and on the right we had local um, mission control. We also had um, a main mission control in Belgium with a time delay um, which was shorter than the actual uh, Mars delay because when you're in sort of when you're just training and simulating um, it'll be um, a little bit too, too long uh, because you don't have so much time in the end for trying out things. So that's why the delays are always a little bit shorter. So you see here the Capcom and then uh, he was supporting the, the procedures. So we could test um, aspects of habitability, a lot of different operations, uh, science, but also tech technology all the tools we developed. We also tested how the operations around the suit port, uh, you can see that here, this is stepping into um, the suit. And then this is when you're wearing the suit. You had, you could see that uh, there were, um, this was um, a, a tablet, an iPad, where there were a lot of procedures um, being shown. Uh, there were cameras uh, here on the armrest and here on the top. So, and all these footage uh, went into the main mission control center to Brussels, but of course also to the local control center. And it went um, to the remote user side, which was, uh, it was a representation of the science, this, the PIs, the principal investigators. We did. Uh, we designed a couple of tools and payload boxes um, for the for the rover. Uh, is we Dr. Imhoff? Uh, five yes. minutes. Thank you. And uh, you see again, this is a gesture controlled um, a, a gesture controlled rover. And Pascali was showing that with a drone, so it's quite interesting what how we can steer, um, you know, our companions. This is the, the last uh, um, simulation. This is the Eden ISS project. It's about a greenhouse. And also Angelo pointed out that when we want to go to moon and Mars, we probably will not have these glass domes, but we'll have a very 
um, um, you know, encapsulated uh, growth chamber. So this is the, the greenhouse has been there for a couple of years since 2018 now. It's very successful. It is all about um, preparing for a long duration space flight. It's about um, also it's, it's very isolated. It is in Antarctica, which is an ideal test bed uh, for a long duration space missions. And it's also about developing uh, the ECLIS system um, in for the um, um, for a sp uh, part of an ECLIS system for uh, a base. The results um, it was quite successful, 200, nearly 270 kilograms on uh, 12 square meters over nine and a half months. Um, the power consumption was actually less, less that, than we previously assumed. And we also made a design and we could prove through this, this de a specific design for a lunar or a Martian base. And we uh, could prove that this design can actually be applied um, for um, also in, in a very compact way. So this is an aeroponic system with um, very little material you need. So the roots are all in the dark and they get fed by a nutrition delivery system every or sprayed uh, um, by a nutrition delivery system every 10 minutes. You also see there's a lot of um, additional biomass being uh, produced. Yeah, just a summary. So um, it's really, one has to think what to test, what to train, what to simulate, and what is the, the best um, site for this. Uh, simulations are an important part of any kind of spaceflight preparation. And um, you, there are different, one doesn't need, you, you can also have a simulation in your own flat, actually, when you isolate yourself. So, um, and maybe you, so it could be a, a first training into, into a space mission. And there are different ways, either in a open outdoors um, analog uh, um, um, area or also indoors in a more controlled environment. And um, in the last years, I've started working on the Bioplex project in 1997 at NASA. And until now, I think the tendency is more towards multiple event integrated uh, simulations or uh, even simulators. And as Liquifer, we have also been involved in many design studies for the European Space Agency. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Barbara. That's a lot of work that uh, uh, you've involved in, in the past few years. And again, uh, clearly shows the importance of uh, simulation missions in various uh, various environments uh, and also also the risks even during simulations uh, <laughs> uh, it's good to uh, hear that uh, uh, so uh, Ken I think I think we are a little bit delayed but uh, we are on to our next program uh, Ken. Yeah, uh, Professor Riesman. Is he here? Yes. Oh, great. There is uh, Garrett. Uh, Hi, Manu. Uh, how are you doing, Garrett? Great. I'm great. Uh, how are you? Uh, well, uh, we saw you uh, dialed in about 11.30 and saw some terrible stuff, but that's the way <laughs> Ken warned us about this, but uh, uh, I'm glad he took care of it. Uh, 
so how are you doing, Garrett? Uh, I want to introduce you before you introduce yourself. Um, so uh, as you all know, uh, USC has a, a, a special uh, place um, for, ast uh, for astronauts. Uh, we graduated uh, the first man uh, uh, who landed on the moon and uh, the pilot uh, who landed uh, uh, Apollo 11 on the moon is a reviewer uh, uh, frequently in our studios. Um, so um, it's often we think about um, uh, human space flight and uh, um, and so um, <laughs> when uh, we uh, got um, a whiff of an idea that an astronaut was going to join the faculty, um, uh, you know, we, we uh, really uh, uh, invited uh, uh, him with open arms. And that is uh, um, you know, Dr. Garrett uh, uh, Reisman here with us today. I'm so happy that you are with us, Garrett. Um, did you have any comments at all on some of the simulations uh, that you may have seen uh, uh, in these slides uh, just uh, after you joined us uh, before I ask you more pointed questions? <laughs> I know, I think there, I, I mean, I think it's very interesting. I love some of the innovation and creativity uh, that goes into these designs. And, uh, you know, I think with, we're, we're accumulating a, a, a good critical mass of design ideas and different architectures. So I think that once we have the real mission requirements and we have a uh, honest to goodness um, program underway to, to, uh, to, to settle on Mars, then uh, I think we'll have a plethora of good options to pick from. So uh, well done to everybody. Um, and Garrett, would you like to tell us um, if um, you see um, yeah, I know you, you spend a lot of time in the buoyancy tanks because I watch your Instagram and I, I, I'm hoping others do too. Um, but would you like to tell us about um, uh, some of your um, unusual or interesting experiences in simulations? Um, sure. So, so uh, in preparation for my long duration flight on the space station, I participated in a number of different uh, analogs that were, were all slightly different and, and attempting to address different training issues. They, um, they all had their own different flavor. I think that the strongest one as a particular analog was actually the Aquarius mission I did where we lived for two weeks in the bottom of the sea uh, in this Aquarius habitat, which is a habitat run by NOAA. Uh, and uh, it's off the, it's about, it's a couple miles off the shore of Key Largo down in the Florida Keys. And it's in about 60 feet of water uh, depth, which made it almost exactly 20,000 millimeters under the sea. So uh, we went with that title for our mission. And um, that was really uh, one of the things that it, you know, obviously you, you look out the window and you see hammerhead sharks and other fish. So that's not quite a good analog for Mars. We're probably not going to see too many uh, fish swimming around our habitats on Mars. But uh, the thing that, that made it a particularly useful training uh, look uh, analog was the fact that uh, you really do have a, a separation 
and it, a safety critical uh, separation from the rest of the world. And that's because you're saturation diving. So normally, uh, if you're recreational, if you're being a recreational scuba diver, you have about 60 minutes uh, at 60 feet. And after that amount of time, if you stay any longer, you will uh, dissolve too much nitrogen in your blood and you will be at great risk of decompression sickness when you come back to the surface. So that's the time limit that we restrict ourselves to. Now, if you go down to 60 feet and you stay there for more than 60 minutes, there's no problem as long as you don't come back up because your blood level will eventually uh, asymptotically reach a new saturation level. And as long as you don't relieve the pressure, if you keep the pressure at that, uh, at that level, which is uh, in absolute terms, roughly three atmospheres, uh, you're, you're okay. Uh, the problem is um, it means that you can't come back up. <laughs> So you're stuck down there. And uh, the only way to come back up is through a very gradual process of decompression uh, in stages happening very slowly over the course of about 24 hours. So what I'm getting at here is that uh, should you need emergency medical attention or for any reason had to get help from uh, earthlings, okay, it's gonna take 24 hours, which coincidentally is about the same amount of time it takes on the ISS to do an emergency departure uh, in the Soyuz and, and re-enter and come back down to Earth. So basically your distance, if you will, in time from yourself and, and, and medical attention or a hospital is the same in Aquarius as it is on the space station. So psychologically, uh, that's really important because it's uh, it, the thing about simulations and analogs, which often is a um, to their detriment, is the fact that you know uh, that it's safe. When we practice in simulators for the space shuttle and we would do missions, we would you know, have catastrophic disasters all the time uh, or, or very, very difficult days in that shuttle. And we, we don't always survive. Uh, we, try to, we try to always survive, but it doesn't always happen. But you know that even if, even if you don't survive in the simulation, you're gonna go home, you're <laughs> gonna have right. dinner, <laughs> you're gonna watch some television, maybe have a glass of wine and go to sleep, right? So the the it's very very different when you're in the actual space shuttle and there are consequences if you throw a bad switch or you might not go home and have a glass of wine and go to sleep uh so that's why the the aquarius was particularly good we tried to make it as good of an analogy to the iss as we could we we ate this we we, we ate the same food we prepared it the same way we had all of our space food down there so it was the food was just as terrible at twenty thousand millimeters under the sea as it was at 280 kilometers above the sea uh, but um, we also, uh, we did a lot of the same science experiments, microbial growth samples and things like that, that we would later do on the space station. The crew was, my, it turned out the crew, this is more or less fortuitous, but my commander on the, on the Aquarius was Peggy Whitson, who would later be my commander on the ISS. Um, and so there were a lot of similarities. We, we went out scuba diving every day uh, and, and we, and that was to simulate going out and doing spacewalks. So we had tasks to do. We, 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 with PVC pipe, we pretended to construct, uh, structures as if we were doing an EVA around the space station. So, um, in, ev in every way we could, we try to make it the same, but obviously we still had a, a 1G environment, uh, in the habitat. And, uh, but it, it was, it, it, as far as the, the square meter per, per person, it was close. Uh, or actually, it's probably close to the shuttle and station, but but there were a lot of things that we tried to keep uh, similar. Um, tell me about uh, uh, teamwork, Gary. <coughs> Bless you. 
Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, tell me about about teamwork um, in the um, astronaut um, core. Um, what uh, did you experience uh, that uh, you would highlight um, yeah, that that uh, really made sense to you later on as well? And uh, give us some ideas. Give them. Give sure. us some. Well, in, in the shuttle days, when we were just doing um, missions that were less than two weeks in duration, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of, of training or thought applied to it. There, there, you do, when you when you apply to be an astronaut, there's a, uh, back when I applied anyway, there was a simple uh, screening exam. You spent a couple hours with a number two pencil filling out uh, questions about your mom and stuff like that. And, and they're looking for diagnosable psychoses. I mean, it had to be something that was clinical, not, not just... Um, they weren't trying to optimize, they're just trying to screen out the extremes. And that was really it. And we ran it with a more or less um, a, a quasi-military hierarchy uh, where we had a commander in charge of the mission and uh, a more or less directive leadership style. And that was fine for two weeks at a time. But we realized when we started doing uh, ISS missions and we started doing uh, missions that were going into one month, two, you know, multiple months and then up to a year, that that uh, was not going to be sufficient, uh, either as far as screening or as far as preparation or as far as leadership style. So one of the, the so we started studying a lot of um, uh, actually early Arctic explorers uh, and what they did right and what they did wrong. And we studied a lot of the early, not only Arctic, but other sea voyages that were similarly long duration, had a lot of the same psychological challenges of isolation, confinement and risk. And so we studied things like the ones that went wrong and the ones that went right, like Shackleton. And we studied Shackleton was a particularly good example of his leadership style. And what we learned from all this was that you need to have a very flexible leadership style on expeditions, uh, different than short duration shuttle missions or what you might expect from a platoon uh, captain in, a, in, a, in, a, in an armed conflict. And, and so what that means is that there, for most of the time, you have to have a more or less democratic system uh, where everybody has a chance to have input into into decisions. So if you're deciding, you know, what movie to watch uh, on the ISS, you know, you don't want the commander picking it every single night, right? <laughs> That's not going to go over well. Or, or uh, sure. so so you need to have a a, a more or less a, a more uh, democratic style of leadership. But if there's an emergency, if suddenly you, the ISS begins to decompress then you need to switch immediately to a directive leadership style and a, com and a commander has to say, okay, we're not gonna vote on this. I need you to go close this hatch. I need you to monitor the pressure in, in, this, in the Russian segment. I need you to, and, and, and be more directive um, in, in those. So, so we taught uh, uh, this kind of flexible leadership style, but what was equally as important was what we call expeditionary behavior which is not just leadership, but, but actually more important is, is good followership. Um, mm -hmm. You can have an outstanding leader, but if you have a, a lot of lousy followers, it's, it's not gonna go well. And, um, and that's often neglected. You know, we talk so much and I think it's natural human ambition to focus on leadership, but really followership, there's a lot more followers than leaders by definition. That's right. um, uh, and so we, we teamed up with uh, probably the best training we had for this was the team uh, teaming up with the National Outdoor Leadership School, Knowles. And we sent a lot of astronauts out into the field uh, with, the, with instructors from this group. And uh, the way we structured this was, it was usually about a couple of weeks 
and you're uh, living completely remotely, you're carrying everything on your back. You had these like 90 pound packs we were carrying through the Utah deserts and, um, and, and, and we were you know, far removed from, from civilization. But it wasn't, only, and we learned things about how to survive, how to find water, how to make, how to light fires and those kinds of things. But that really wasn't the, it wasn't survival training per se. What it really was, was about learning expeditionary behavior using this as an analog. And what, and every night, uh, so every day you would have a different person in a group was, was selected as the leader and we would rotate. So you would get your turn and then the next day it'd be somebody else's turn and everybody else would be a follower. And at the end of the, at the end of every single day after dinner, we would sit around a campfire and debrief and we'd have extensive conversations about things like self-management, self-care, team care, leadership, followership, and we would, we would go through and, and debrief the day and, and that particular leader and uh, see, you know, what we could have done better and what lessons we can learn. And, and it was led by the, the Knowles instructors sharing their, uh, sharing their experiences and, and, and uh, they acted as moderators and facilitators. So uh, I did one of the early ones, we were doing a trial one. Coincidentally enough, it was also with Peggy Whitson. I, uh, I, I don't know what I did to, uh, keep uh, drawing the short straw. No, but no, Peggy's great. I, I, she was an awesome commander, but, uh, but also Michael Fole, Roberto Vittori, Carl Waltz, and um, Barbara Morgan were part of that group. So uh, that was my first group. And then later we did other ones as, as, as once you get selected to a crew, we would send the, the crew uh, as a group to, to go through this. And it's also a great way to get to know your crewmates before uh, you have to rely on them uh, up in space. So that was another analog that we use. Very, very Madhu, two minutes. Oh, oh two gosh, minutes. we could go on forever, Garrett, but you're right. Okay, yeah, the, uh, trick, trick question. <laughs> Did you have some uh, trouble with your teammates? Did I have some trouble with my teammates? Um, <laughs> on mission. <laughs> happy, very, I'm very happy to say that that no, there wasn't any really significant. Oh, you're a most accommodating human. No, uh, it's not me. It's not me. I got really <laughs> lucky. I, I, I promise you there are individuals who, if they were with me on the space station, there would have been problems. <laughs> <laughs> but I was very fortunate to get, uh, I think I flew with a total of about 20 people and, and they were all amazing and wonderful. And I would love to fly with every single one of them again. The only time that there's any kind of any, I wouldn't say conflict, but there was definitely... You know, there are the, the cultural differences are something that, by and large, on a day to day basis, we we get past quite quickly. And when I was over in Russia training with the cosmonauts, or when I was in Japan training at JAXA, uh, really these cultural differences were something that were celebrated, and 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 we all were eager to learn and experience each other's culture, and it was all a very positive thing. But when you live with somebody for months and months and months, you do start to realize that that there's a deeper um, current there, which is that there's a worldview uh, that is is different, uh, fundamentally. And uh, it doesn't really, it's really, it really, uh, you have to, you have to get deep into this for that to actually become any kind of an issue. And it's not that it was an issue, but you just realize after like, oh, they don't view certain things through the same lens that mm -hmm. I do. And you kind of just agree to disagree. Um, so I wouldn't say it was a problem, but it was an interesting discovery that, um, that you know, through the training process, it was all a, a celebration. But uh, but when you live uh, very close and go through one of these very intense experiences together, that you 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 get to a deeper level. 
Very good. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, uh, I want you to know uh, he's our uh, wonderful uh, human space flight professor uh, in the astronautical engineering department. And between professors, uh, between students and professors, we always discuss professors and how they are doing. And uh, so far, Garrett has, Garrett has come across as an exceedingly uh, uh, wonderful uh, professor to deal with. Yeah. And I'm, I'm hoping you're enjoying your classes, Garrett. And, uh, uh, you know, it's wonderful to have you on USC faculty. And uh, um, happy holidays. And you have a beautiful family and uh, enjoy, uh, enjoy the holidays before we get back to online instruction in, this, in the spring. <laughs> Thank you very much for the kind words. I had no idea that, uh, that, uh, that this evaluation was going on, but it's good to hear that, <laughs> that uh, I did okay. So uh, thank you very much for the kind words. Thank you so much, Garrett. Happy holidays, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, we are on to our um, uh, next, uh, um, next speaker. That's right. Um, we had a little difficulty um, uh, organizing at the last moment, but I'm so glad that uh, uh, Dr. Michaela Musholova is with us, uh, fresh from uh, uh, Hawaii uh, Simulation Missions. Uh, Michaela, Michaela, I hope you enjoyed uh, uh, Hank's uh, wonderful uh, uh, rendition of what uh, he plans to do. Um, Welcome, please uh, do your show and tell, we are watching. Great, thank you so much. Um, aloha everyone from Hawaii. Uh, as Maru said, uh, I, I just finished an analog mission last night. I'm still getting back to being <laughs> on earth. Um, all right, so let me get started. Hopefully I can share my screen. Yeah, so, sorry to push you, but I'm so glad you're with us. <laughs> no, it's my pleasure. Hoping we could find a way to make it work. Okay, so hopefully you can see my screen all right. So I would uh, just like to give you a quick overview of, of the High Seas Research Station and the, the missions that we uh, perform at High Seas nowadays. Uh, High Seas is now under the International Moon Base Alliance, but it was originally uh, built in a collaboration between NASA and the University of Hawaii. Uh, I'm the director of this facility. If you're not familiar, it's this white dome you see in the picture there with the adjacent other buildings. It's located on the volcano Mauna Loa on the Big Island of Hawaii. Um, the previous missions used to be focused primarily on Mars. Nowadays, we do a lunar and Martian simulated missions. They can be in, uh, of different length. Uh, so for instance, nowadays, because of the pandemic, we do mostly two-week missions. Uh, it's kind of like a, a space quarantine, if you will, just to be on the safe side of things. Uh, and we also opened up the facility to work with people from different space agencies, universities, and even independent organizations around the world. For instance, the mission I ended uh, last night was a Sensoria mission, which uh, targets primarily women to have more and more women in leadership and majority female crews, as well as it's open to the LGBTQ plus community. And uh, here's just a quick overview of the facility itself. This is a, a panorama picture actually from the most recent mission that we uh, ended yesterday. This is what the inside of the dome looks like. It's approximately 12 meters in diameter. 
most of the area is shared. There are video cameras watching the crew members. And uh, the only real private space for bathrooms are, are the uh, individual bedrooms. You can see in the top right picture over there. As you can see, it's, it's pretty crammed, but by analog standards, it's actually pretty spacious. Especially the dome structure makes you feel like there's much more air to breathe, literally, in there. Uh, we, uh, if you look at the picture, the main one, you see we have different exercise possibilities, uh, a treadmill, there's a stationary bicycle. We now even have a new uh, structure, which is that you might notice right in the middle of the picture, it's something like a Christmas tree, but actually it's, it's a mini greenhouse and it produced a huge amount of greens on our most recent mission. So we were very happy. Um, and generally this main area is basically a multifunctional room. So people work at their workstations and there might be people exercising right behind them and right next door is a kitchen where people will be cooking, chatting, listening to music. So to be able to be a, a good crew member, you have to be very patient tolerant of all these things, adaptable, and empathy, uh, I find is key. But of course, I agree with what was said previously about being both a good leader and follower to, to make these missions work. In terms of uh, the food, uh, just very briefly, this is kind of a snapshot of some of the types of uh, food we eat, but most of it is freeze-dried, either in the form of powder or these sort of granules. You can see on the right-hand side, the top is beef, bottom is chicken. And if you're unlucky and don't have good cooks on your mission, it ends up being this mush stuff in the middle. You can see in the top picture. Uh, so I've been fortunate. Most of the time I get good cooks on missions, but sometimes it, it was so painful to eat that we only ate the food to get some calories inside our bodies, which was of course very unfortunate. Uh, in terms of uh, water, I think I seems to be a little bit frozen. There we go. Um, Everything is limited. So the amount of food we offer and that the crew gets to use over say a two week mission or however long the mission is, there's only a certain amount. Um, and unless it were to be a long duration missions, we don't do resupplies. So the crew has to be able to manage their supplies well. Same goes for water. Uh, recently we've been testing the crews with only giving them a hundred gallons of water for a two week mission and a six person crew which means most crew members don't shower at all or shower, they do like five second bucket showers and things like that, which is that picture of the bucket on the right-hand side. Uh, cleaning dishes is also ration water a lot. So you see a bucket system of crew members using over there. And basically at all times, the uh, crew engineers have to monitor water levels to make sure that we'll, we'll manage within our allocated amount uh, for the mission. Uh, the whole time the crew um, is in uh, contact and monitored by people in mission control. This uh, facility you see in the picture and you see Bernard in the bottom right picture there um, is in Hawaii, uh, also on the big island. Uh, what you see in the top left picture is that's actually me when I was Capcom for a particular mission earlier this year. We can see how much water, electricity, and other important life support systems are available to the crew. We can watch them over cameras if, if we need to. We give them weather reports and, and help them out if they have any questions. And uh, we also have support from a lot of volunteers all around the world, which we're very grateful for, that help us with every single mission. Uh, there's a time delay imposed on the communications with the moon. We're only talking about a two-second time delay each way. With Mars wish missions, we put in an approximate 20-minute time delay each way. So if you imagine there's an emergency, it would take at least 40 minutes for people in mission control to provide the crew with an answer. So we train the Mars crews to be much more independent of mission control 
and just have to you know make calls on their own if something were to come up. Whereas the moon missions, uh, they're in much more contact with, with mission control and uh, volunteers, if, if they need help, guidance with anything, they can even run them through with a slight time delay of, of going through some troubleshooting of electronic systems and things like that. Uh, this is just an example. We, we keep the crews busy with uh, schedules throughout the day, everything from doing a research you can see in our little lab in the habitat from actually that's a, a MS crew, MS uh, mission number one. Uh, do uh, They have to do at least 30 minutes of exercise per day and they have to write reports which they send to mission control every day about the research they do. Some crew members have different roles like crew uh, journalists and engineers so they have specific reports they have to write for that role as well. And uh, in terms of research, we do a variety. This is just a quick snapshot. We do different types of geological and astrobiological studies, particularly in lava tubes that are around us. Because again, we're on a volcano. Most of the terrain is volcanic around us. A lot of these interesting geological features relevant both to the moon and Mars. So just some examples in the top left picture, uh, that's me uh, for scale standing above one of the bigger lava tubes we have available to us. And uh, on a recent mission, we actually explored that uh, lava tube and it's of interest uh, from a uh, space architectural point of view as well, in terms of whether we would be able to build some kind of modular habitat in these lava tubes. And from an astrobiology perspective, all these different deposits, as you see in the bottom right picture, uh, could be of interest to astrobiology because we could potentially find something similar on Mars today. And so actually I, I set up a collaboration with a group from NASA Goddard. That's me in the bottom left picture, uh, collecting some samples. And you see, I have to do it while wearing our analog spacesuit. So it's, it's very complicated to keep things sterile and follow very strict astrobiological protocols. Then we do a lot of human related research. Um, uh, apology, five minutes. Okay, thank you. Um, so for example, on the left hand side, those are more kind of, uh, say psychological, sociological research where you see the crew members are wearing these so-called mood colors. And uh, what they're meant to do, there's a sensor in the palm of your hand that's uh, meant to change the color of the sweater based on how you're feeling. And it's to do with the fact that uh, you can't really control whether your palms get sweaty or your motions in your hands. And uh, so if you look at the picture, for example, in, in the bottom left, we're all doing this acrobatic teamwork exercise and all our, our mood sweaters are blue. And that means because we're really focused on the activity that we're doing, whereas in the top left picture, we're doing a different activity and you can see different colors of the sweaters because some crew members were very happy, others were excited, but some were actually agitated. So the idea behind that experiment is to increase our empathy to understand how everyone is feeling and to be able to react appropriately in different situations. Um, other more uh, physiological research was focused on how much exercise um, helps during missions, so you can see the crew members were even monitored for how much their breathing changed over time. And relevant to today's uh, talks, uh, some space architectural stuff. Oops, sorry, my presentation just jumped. Uh, there was one uh, crew where they covered the habitat in white to see whether the absence of color would affect the crew. And indeed, it actually had a big effect on some crew members. And then we went to going into full color mode right after a week of being all black and white. 
And we also do a number of technology testings. You can see different types of rovers in this picture, even in Tyrone. And we have a collaboration with the uh, Hawaiian organization Pisces, which lent us their bigger rover. You can see in that picture, which we also tested. And because we have so many technologies and life support systems, we always need to have at least one, ideally two engineers on every mission. You can see looking at our life support systems, how much power we have left, how our water supply changes, and obviously to fix things if something gets broken. And finally, we do a lot of outreach and educational work, work with a lot of media. Uh, recently, this movie Space Drop came out as a kind of funny documentary that was filmed during an analog moon mission at high seas. And I also organize different competitions for students. In the bottom right picture is an example of one as uh, a Slovakian competition where high school students get to design scientific experiments that we perform on missions. And the winning experiment, yeah, we, we get to take and perform on different missions. And that one was uh, about using human hair uh, and that of the crew members to uh, dissolve it and use it as fertilizer. So that's the brown liquid I'm holding in my hand. There is actually human hair fertilizer uh, that we then use to grow spinach uh, on our missions. Um, thank you very much for your attention. Here are my contact details if you'd like to get in touch, involved with our missions through research, outreach, um, various uh, opportunities that we have available. Thank you very much. Okay. Good. So we hope we can reconvene soon the expedition to ICs from Europe. <laughs> yes, I hope so too. This year has been very difficult in terms of having international people come do missions at high seas because of all the travel bans and things like that. But hopefully in the near future, we can have more uh, MS missions, which would be really great. Okay. In the meantime, we prepare a lot of technical experiments and investigations, so we have a, a lot we would want to bring. Sounds good, sounds good. Um, Ken, are we going into panel discussion now? Uh, yes, if you are ready. Oh, go on then. Uh, uh, um, uh, conti continue uh, with, uh, with, uh, with the talk. Uh, um, uh, Bernard, I didn't mean to interrupt. Excellent. Okay, well, uh, yeah. uh, uh, well, we'll uh, <laughs> well we'll move along here now. Uh, I, I'll focus more. We we have quite a few panelists, so I'll I'll, I'll be uh, we want to be very quick about this. Um, I think we have twenty minutes or something. Um, uh, I will go first with the. Uh, you know, sim knots, uh, the people who have been uh, in uh, in these situations. Uh, you just heard from Michaela. Um, you know, so uh, let me go now to Jacqueline and ask her about her experience, uh, um, how it really felt uh, to be a part of a group. And my favorite question to everybody is conflicts and how we go about resolving them um, after it happens or before it happens. Um, it's very important because uh, um, uh, it's human nature. And usually when you are uh, more um, accomplished, uh, you develop a, a, a personality uh, that can be uh, more abrasive to 
uh, your neighbor. So, uh, Jacqueline. Yes. Um, yeah, definitely being away from uh, the ones that, that you know, or, uh, that you love um, with uh, people that even if you train with them, right, um, being uh, under different conditions is, uh, can, can produce some of those um, alterations or, or uh, team behaviors that, that you might not even see at the beginning, even during training. Uh, what we do, did for, for those type of um, scenarios were uh, team debriefs. Uh, so um, after, uh, I think in middle of the mission, uh, that's where, and, and I, was, um, I was also in MDRS, but both of them were two weeks. Uh, so kind of like uh, uh, the two or third day, the, the things started coming out uh, and the fourth or fifth day, we said, okay, we need to talk about these. So the team debriefs is a, a little bit more a formal process for, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the, the baby just came back. <laughs> Okay. Everyone's awake now, I guess. Yep. You, know, you know, there's life around. That's great. Yeah. I have two kids. <laughs> Just woke up. Um, and so, yeah, the, the team debriefs uh, helped a lot to uh, just bring everything out on the table and each crew member will, um, will come and say what they're feeling, what things can be improved, what things bother them and uh, without really attacking each other, right? Yeah. So it's in a more formal way and um, and then we all come up with uh, situations on how to help each other uh, improve or better. And, and actually, that, that was something that I used in my own family uh, here <laughs> while we were uh, doing, uh, you know, during this COVID situation, because um, it helped with, while I was in the simulation. So after the first month that uh, we were <laughs> just uh, at home, um, even with the, with the little ones, it was good to hear them uh, because sometimes they, they complain or they scream, just like you heard. But um, the, if uh, that feeling doesn't come out, uh, then uh, we don't know what really is bothering them. Them. So I think that's very helpful in uh, everything that, that we do. So team debriefs, mm -hmm. I encourage that. Uh, Bernard? Yeah, uh, from a mission control uh, perspective, uh, um, I think we, we, um, we can say we have a way for short duration mission to avoid conflict. Uh, was mission control. So uh, I give them a lot of work. I ask them to follow some discipline, safety first. Mm -hmm. I've learned that from uh, then of uh, uh, simulation, research, comfort at the end. Okay. And also, I give them so much work that uh, <laughs> they are busy, don't have the time to fight, and they, they all hate the mission director. So this is a very good bonding between all the crew. Yeah, so that's for sure. Yeah, this is, this is how uh, mission control uh, keeps, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, very, very uh, hyperactive, uh, a crew uh, occupied and not interacting. But in any case, for short duration missions, they are very <coughs> motivated. Uh, so they have research objectives, they, they have this experience, they, they meet also people, they discover them really in depth, like a family. Uh, it's a, such a rich experience. And if they have a bit some emotion, they can always convert that into positive energy. Imagine. For long term, that's a different issue. Sorry. Uh, Pascal. Uh, give us your thoughts on, uh, be specific. Uh, we want to hear um, <laughs> some rough and tumble uh, uh, that may have happened uh, during your uh, incredible <laughs> missions uh, that we only get to watch on Discovery Channel. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> we, you know, we, I'm not sure what the question was. Is it just, uh, uh, 
conflicts and how do you go about uh, uh, negotiating difficulties uh, when you have team members uh, uh, who, who have difficulties with each other or things like that? Yeah, you know, uh, you, I, I, I agree with, actually with uh, what I heard earlier from uh, uh, the astronaut, I forget his name. Uh, Garrett, Garrett Reisman. Yeah, Gary Reisman, he, he mentioned something I thought was interesting is that for to the extent possible to keep the peace in an expeditionary environment, you want to keep it democratic for all kinds of day-to-day -day aspects of decision making, because there's no particular reason why you have to impose your you know particular habits or interests on, on others. But it is also true that when it comes to uh, specific uh, activities that all of a sudden require a lot of discipline and organization. For example, uh, an EVA or a sortie with ATVs out in the wilderness of the Arctic uh, or you know, um, a, a traverse. In that case, all of a sudden you are, you are in a very special operational environment where there's a, there's a very specific mission, the resources are tight, uh, you know, you might be confined in space as well. Uh, so, so when you have a very, uh, con, you know, some sort of a constrained operation to carry out, uh, then it really helps to have somebody who is in charge uh, and a very clear distribution of roles. The other thing that I've thought was is very important is that anytime you, you go on an expedition or a mission, you, you really agree on what the goal is. Uh, and this may seem obvious, but it actually uh, is often, if you even read the history of exploration, it's, it's often what has become a source of conflict because yeah. people are going on these journeys for, for, of course, it's understood you go on these journeys maybe for different personal reasons, but the actual objective, what, what is what you have to accomplish versus where you can give up. Those are, those are aspects of an expedition that when they're not spelled out ahead of time, lead to a lot of conflict and yeah. agreement. So uh, it goes back to planning, 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 uh, and communicating, communicating, communicating. You have to you know, all agree on what the mission is. This is true for special forces. It's true for you know, what exactly is the success criterion of your operation? Uh, you know, what do you have to do? And, and then... Uh, and then everything else is sort of optional. And that, those are the types of things that I think need to be, to be really spelled out. Spelled out. Interesting thought. Yeah. Um, yeah, Bob, can you tell us, uh, I'm assuming that you have sat in mission control um, for many expeditions of the MDRS. Um, did you see um, unusual uh, things and how did you go about, um, about resolving them? Uh, in these uh, simulations that have happened? Because um, I think uh, MDRS is one of the longest running simulations uh, that I know of in terms, because you're one of the pioneers to start this kind of activity. Right, well, um, we started SIMS in the Arctic in 2001 and in the desert in 2002. Yeah. Um, so we've been going now for uh, just about 20 years. Um, well, uh, you know, most of our crews, but the very large majority of our crews, 
uh, have ha have worked out well. They've worked together well. There there have been some that didn't. Um, three or four, I would say, out of uh, 240 crews. Um, uh, I, I actually do agree uh, with what Pascal just said. Yes, it's important to have a general agreement as to what the mission is all about. Um, and it's very important to have a team spirit. And um, I also agree with, uh, uh, to an extent, to what Bernard said, is that it's important to keep the crew busy, um, although a good crew will keep itself busy. Uh, and in fact, uh, in contrast to a lot of the human factors research uh, that was published uh, in the period prior to our work, uh, for instance, the book Bold Endeavors, uh, recounting the human factors uh, of the uh, teams in Antarctica, um, we have found that uh, the main human factors problem is not, uh, with a good crew, it is not boredom, it's overwork. Uh, and because a good crew will drive itself, you've got people, you know, the, these people in Antarctica, the Navy enlisted men who'd much rather be in San Diego, um, but for the scientists going to the Arctic, this is what they've been waiting for. Uh, and uh, to some extent, you've sometimes had pathologies with um, uh, scientists competing with each other for priority in doing their research. Yeah. Uh, you know, why are we doing her work? You know, you've deferred mine for two weeks now. The weather's going to get bad next week. If this is not done today, I may never get my research done. Um, okay. and, and, and some of that, but, but certainly, okay, it's not exactly healthy, but it's, it's certainly healthier than people who have withdrawn and are, are, are bored. And, and, and uh, I uh, repeatedly had to order uh, my crews in the Arctic to stop work at 9 p.m. Um, at 9 p.m. Uh, they would go into the night. They, in fact, there is no night, so they would just keep going. Um, the, the um, but to get them to pace themselves. So I, I don't think it's necessary for mission control to uh, uh, make up work for a crew. The, a good crew, <laughs> what is necessary to have a crew that will work itself. And then, yeah, then they won't have time to have fights or at least the fights they will have will be about uh, uh, stuff that's worth fighting about, uh, at least to some extent. Um, the, um, We have had a couple of conflicts between, um, in particular, we, we have two kinds of crews. Uh, we've had crews where a whole crew comes to you and say, hi, we're the team from Georgia Tech and we wanna be a crew, okay? And then you have a crews that we get individual volunteers and we assemble them into the crew. Um, and I would say we've had more problem with the latter, uh, although many of them have worked out just fine, the large majority, but, and, 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 you know, some of the problems you, you, you get, I mean, you could almost predict, except you don't want to. Like we had a crew with a female commander and a, a Muslim male in, in the crew. Uh, and that did not work. Um, and uh, he had to go. Um, okay, out the airlock, out of Hanksville, gone. Okay, the, the, now that's a stereotype and, and, and um, it wouldn't necessarily be the case with all such people, um, but some stereotypes do have basics in, in reality. Yep. And these, are, these are important issues. That's uh, it. Yeah. Um, 
But I think, you see, here's the thing. If you're going to have problems in a crew, you can, if, if two people are really going to rub each other the wrong way, you can find this out in a relatively short sim. Um, and that's why I think the crews should be tested. Yeah, first you can test a large variety of crews in two-week sims, and then the ones you're more serious about, you can test in six-month sims. And you could find out where there's going to be a problem where there isn't. Very good. Angelo, your thoughts? Yeah, I basically agree with, with most of the things that were, that were, were said here. Um, the thing is, I remember in my mission, there were two moments when I got a little upset about one particular crew member and I raised my voice. Um, and afterwards, I got feedback from the rest of the crew, especially after the first time, that um, I could not do this because the anger that I showed, and it was Jenna was really, really uh, upset, uh, it's, it's penetrating the entire half and nobody can, yeah. they can't escape you. And it was a really big lesson learned for me. I was like, I cannot do this, you know, I just at all times, because I was a commander, I have to keep my cool. Um, and so I think there is really the very important um, role of being proactive as a, as a commander. And then of course, joined by your, by your, by your crew is um, to keep that focus on crew cohesion every single day to nurture it, to maintain it. There are all kinds of tricks you can do it. <clears throat> One of the things that I asked the crew was, please try to avoid working in your room the whole day. I know it's, you know, it's, it's a nice little bubble and you, you, know, you can focus probably a bit more, but spend at least a little bit time of the day in the common room with all the rest working together. So that's kind of agreements that we made. Um, we also had morning sessions in which we debriefed each other quickly, as quickly as we could, on what we would do plan that particular day. And as a consequence, we were very much aware of each other's work all the time. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence of that, people started collaborations that otherwise would not have happened. People jumped in, well, hey, I can do this. I have experience with this software. I can help you out. And so, and that was really beautiful to see that emerging without any without any, without any planning. And then lastly, uh, I was doing some research together with University of Ghent in Belgium on um, SDT, it's self-determination theory, it's a psychological study. So every uh, Saturday morning, I had a session in which I would ask two questions to the crew. The first one was, how did you cope this week? And the second one question was, how did you try to improve the situation you're, you find yourself in? And very quickly, this became the weekly therapy session. It was a very open conversation on anything that, and people showed their, um, also their weaknesses, you know, the, all the struggles, you know, we were open about it. And then, and I'm treading um, stereotypes as well here, um, but it was often the women that were more easily in translating their struggles and putting it into on the table and and finding the right words for it and really? then a lot of the men a lot of a lot of the men would listen to this would pick up that kind of approach on how to translate these struggles and would then kind of uh, follow up on that with their own stories but it was clear that they were kind of listening to how women were expressing that. and I'm, once again I'm, I'm i'm aware of that but this is very stereotypical but it's something that i observed uh, during the mission very interesting, very interesting. Uh, um, uh, uh, Jacqueline and uh, Michaela, um, uh, did you uh, experience um, a gender difficulty in, um, in your uh, uh, simulation events as they were happening? Uh, uh, gender difficulties? Uh, um, 
honest, if I may go first, um, I now have over 20 analog missions under That's my right. belt, of which I was commander for. I must say gender was never an issue. No. I was on missions, whether it be five male crew members and myself as commander, or vice versa, five female crew members and one male. And, you know, some people worried how that would go, but a gender, at least from my experience, was never really an issue. It would be the level of experience. So when I put together crews, I try and mix less experienced crew members. So maybe students or people just, you know, freshly graduated with people more experienced to kind of balance things out. And that seems to have a much bigger impact on the crew dynamics than, dynamics. you know, gender or where they're from or things like that. What about you, uh, Jacqueline? Uh, so in the HERA mission, it was even. We had two men and two women, uh, and we didn't perceive that yeah. that difference, uh, mainly yeah. because the tasks were um, the same for everyone. Yeah. At MDRS, it was two women out of seven crew members. Uh, there was a difficulty between two of the younger male um, crew members, um, and uh, yeah, it, it went all the way to to fight and things like that. So the crew and the commander uh, had to interfere and be like, okay, what's going on here? It was the, the first time also for them to kind of being away from from home, from university. So I think it wasn't just the simulation, but uh, you know, being away from uh, from familiar places. Uh, so yeah, and I mean, we we had to talk it out, but that that was. <laughs> yeah, you, know, yeah, you know, one thing that came across in several missions, I don't know if Jack Suster is on. Uh, or, uh, uh, Ken, do you know if uh, Jack is listening in? Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, one of the things that came across is that uh, um, uh, in a mission, um, uh, there's a great deal of uh, interest uh, paid to uh, a person uh, who can cook very well. And, uh, uh, yeah. and um, uh, yeah, Bernard may have something to say about that? Yes, yeah, I, I have some point that uh, I had uh, run a number of missions at MDRS, uh, actually. So maybe 12 crew with a very large uh, background. We started uh, uh, first myself uh, installing equipment and doing a fully research-driven campaign. But after we had series of uh, crew and we saw it was a great platform to learn about diversity. Diversity of language, because we had crew, we are very mixed. Huh? It was Yorun Mars. So we had uh, European, but also American, Asian, and diversity of culture. Uh, I'm, I had a crew where I mixed uh, uh, some uh, um, Air Force cadet and scientists. And so they had to switch the role of being the commander. They learned a lot. They had a very yeah. different approach of operations, but they, they, they learned uh, also uh, some crew uh, with uh, uh, a group which was very well existing before, but some individuals that had to integrate. So clearly that's uh, also a laboratory for group dynamics, okay. where we are doing a lot about ourselves as a humanity, yeah. as a, you know, of people coming from the different uh, areas. Yeah. So clearly we need to, to learn for what would be the moon base and the Mars base and so on. But also ourselves how uh, we project uh, we project in a, in, a, in a team with very diverse role gender uh, geography uh, discipline and so on and there I think we should also do some research on that yeah 
Hank, I know you lit up when we talked about uh, food, and I know we discussed Costco <laughs> food many times. Uh, did you want to say something? Uh, yes. Um, so I've done, um, I, I think relevant uh, experience on my side is I sailed on a Polynesian voyaging uh, double hull. That's right. Yeah. And uh, using celestial navigation, we don't have any communication with the outside world. And everybody has a job. Uh, you know, my, I'm four hours on, eight hours off, four hours on, eight hours off. And, and, and so everybody's busy. But we, one thing we did have is we had a cook. You know, <laughs> okay. and so, so in all of my, you know, I've done three missions to uh, high seas. They were, you know, they're not, not long missions. But I made sure that there was always a cook on my mission. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I a cook for space food. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, there, so we're using the ingredients, the same ingredients, uh, but we actually have yeah. somebody who's creative with that stuff, and and you know turns it into something that that's palatable. And I think I think when you're um, you, you know as much as you need somebody who who can fix things. We need to have somebody on the crew who can cook things. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I remember we had a crew where nobody could fix yeah. anything. And, and so some small thing went wrong. And then it, it like you could hear the, the pump yeah. going bad, for example. You could yeah. hear it. And everybody heard it. But nobody did anything about it. Nobody looked until it failed. And then it became like, oh, my God, we don't have water now. You know, that kind of thing. But they, mm -hmm. they could have, like, listened and thought, hey, there's something going wrong. Um, so I, you know, that kind of situational awareness for something, there's somebody needs to cook, somebody needs to know how to fix things. That's what I have yeah. to say. But in uh, NDRS, we change the cook every day. So <laughs> it was a good lesson of diversity of cuisine. And also the cook could select the music that was uh, listen inside MDRS. Yeah, the oh my goodness! System. I don't know if that gets too, <laughs> too Angelo, difficult. Angelo, uh, Angelo, what did you want to say? Let me let me you see two. that. Um, one minute. Angelo is going for a minute. Uh, originally, uh, when we first started doing uh, our missions, we thought uh, cooking would be a chore, uh, and we decided to spread it around, rotated different person cooking every night. But that, in fact, turned, especially with international crews, into a kind of a competition in terms of who could turn out the most interesting meal with yeah. a perfectly limited set of ingredients uh, that were there. And it was very interesting and it actually contributed to positive morale uh, very much. So not having the cooking relegated to one person but having everybody take a turn at that. Um, and once again, especially with international crews where you would have someone try to introduce someone to a kind of dish that uh, people in their country eat and others might not be familiar with. Um, this was good. Um, and, and yes, people should cook. We, we tried MREs and we tried space food and forget it. Okay, you, you want a, a, a crew of Mars mission to cook, cook, you can have a much greater diversity of, of meals. Angelo, did you want to chime in? Yes, we, um, we actually, the first high seas mission was actually a food study for NASA. Um, and it was actually very focused on comparing uh, cooking with uh, pre-prepared meals. So we had two days of uh, astronaut food, which was you know, mostly backpackers food that was ready under one or two minutes by adding hot water, that was it. And then the other two days we would have to cook. And I totally agree with Bob here that uh, we did the same thing. We rotated the, um, the role of cooking and it unleashed an enormous amount of creativity. 
And this is really typically what many people crave in isolation because, of course, after some time, you know, every square inch of the habitat, Mm. um, you start looking for small projects. And the projects could be people pick up drawing or writing poetry, but cooking is one of them. Um, And we did it in this way that we organized in this way that two people would be responsible for the food during one day. And what happens when two people are in the kitchen and they're preparing food, they start talking. And they start talking about other things, about life in general. And so for crew cohesion, this was really advantageous. And then crucially, the act of caring and sharing that gesture of coming out of the kitchen, even if you're not the most fantastic cook, but you did that effort, you put in the love and you put it on the table, it has a very significant psychological and emotional effect. And afterwards, that person gets feedback. And so once again, on a psychological level, there's many advantages of, of setting it up in this way. That's what I discovered during my experience. Oh, we need to write a book about this, Barbara. You know, what happened to the biomass and, and all, the, all the products that came out of ISS Eden? Did they use it? And uh, what, uh, how did, uh, what, what's the story behind uh, <laughs> the radish that uh, he's probably showing on that beautiful picture. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they actually, they used, so the the Eden ISS greenhouse is located in Antarctica, just 400 meters south of the German Neumeyer 3 station. And um, and it's, uh, since uh, 2018, it's actually producing uh, vegetables, fresh vegetables. So again, it's, it's a matter of food so that you have something fresh between yes. your teeth when you're on long duration is, you know, isolated missions. And it was uh, the cook on the station prepared um, all different kinds of meals with it or salads uh, because we... Uh, we could uh, grow Swiss chard or um, this radish or tomatoes, cucumbers, uh, salads, um, and um, different kinds of you know spicy uh, leaves. So there were um, like mustard leaf, for example. And I think it the 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 feedback in 2018 in the first mission was so positive that um, that they could you know over the whole winter could have fresh uh, food, you know, just plucked from the, from the greenhouse that yeah. actually that's why the, the greenhouse is still there and it's still running because it was, um, it was so good. F- well, it was the, the feedback was so positive. Yeah. You know, I've been following the, uh, um, the, what they call the food chamber in the Antarctica base uh, that was first set up by uh, uh, the, uh, CEAC at the University of Arizona, they were responsible for it early, but now it's run by others. I think National Science Foundation has found somebody else. But uh, it is very important for for people in uh, isolated environments. Daniel and uh, Keelan, um, I'm sorry. Can I just add something? I think another aspect is that uh, you, all these vegetables, they, they flower, you know, they grow flowers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm-hmm. they, they, they bloom. So the, it's, um, uh, you know, the, the color and, and just the change that something is growing, I think is, is also very uh, beneficial to yeah. these um, kind of missions and to all yeah. kinds of space missions. Yeah, we, we, we found that out during the Mir, Mir missions too, early on, that this was very important for the human psyche. Uh, Madhu, uh, yes. 
Pascal here. I, can I chime in on this as well? Yeah, please. I mean, this is very exciting, but we have to close soon. Pascal, go yes. for it. <laughs> I'm originally half French and half Chinese, so it's hard. Oh, you, you <laughs> need good food. <laughs> beautiful that I care about. Food. I am the same. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what I will say is this. I, I don't expect that on early missions, if we are flying to Mars in relatively small crews, uh, that we will have the luxury, resource-wise, even time-wise, <clears throat> to cook every day and to even have a rotation among the crew. Uh, first of all, from our experience in the Arctic, on small missions, uh, people who like to cook will cook uh, on occasion, and people who don't like to cook should not cook, uh, just because it doesn't do much for the morale. So going back to the notion that you know we should all find things that we enjoy doing that can enliven the life of the crew like you know drawing poetry that's i'm agree with that but necessarily having a, a crew rotation where everybody gets to cook i don't think is necessarily a, a sort of a good solution in any case once we get to a larger infrastructure on site like a base on the moon or mars uh, and i'm not sure where the critical mass is but at some point cooking for the entire crew becomes enough of a uh, sort of a important thing to, yeah. to really get right every time, every day at the right time, uh, that it, it it becomes important to have somebody whose sole job is to manage the food, yeah. the, the cooking, the, the service, uh, you know, the, the everything that's connected to that. Yep. And, uh, in Antarctica, yeah. for example, where we wintered over with a crew of 31 people, we had at that time the largest ratio, the French base, the largest ratio of cook of food preparers to to crew members. We had two cooks uh, for a crew of only 31 people uh, for throughout the winter, and one cook actually was selected as a he was a former presidential palace cook. Uh, so mm -hmm. give you a sense of how important they thought cooking was to yeah. assign somebody with this kind of uh, you know uh, responsibility. But the other was a full time pâtissier. So he was making bread every day, pastries. We were living, I, I actually, we had a different French dessert for every meal for 365 days. Oh, okay. I have never tasted so many French desserts in <laughs> we, 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 need this, we need this in our book. Okay, thank you, yeah, Pascal. And Daniel, Lynn, and Kaylin, um, this is a message you want to take back to cradle and that is you know that that dome area that you have you need to be cooking some very good food because the next time i visit the cradle uh, we want to have a good uh, we want to have a good good meal definitely um, uh, yeah. we, we are but uh, on the moon on the moon it could be that when you arrive you, when you see the progress of the Changa program there will be a Chinese restaurant already. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a cartoon of that already. Thank you, Bernard. Okay, good. Uh, okay, uh, uh, Ken, sorry if we blew our schedule here, uh, but now that everybody is talking about food, you know what? We're going to make you starve now because we're going into our next uh, session, part two. Am I right, uh, Ken? Uh, yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so um, now, thank you all for participating in the uh, simulation and simulator program. Um, and now I want to 
Thank you, Barbara. It's late, I know, uh, for some of you in Europe. Um, and now I want to um, uh, expose us all uh, to uh, uh, the next group of people um, that have to do. Uh, is my screen coming on again? Please let me know. Can I share my slides? Uh, oh, here we go. Um, I'll try to be short, um, uh, Ken, so that we can spend more time. Um, we are on to part two. I want to introduce you all to a range of people from all over the world uh, who are uh, practicing um, architecture uh, as a profession, uh, but have a, an, an interest uh, in space activities. So I, I want to introduce them as space architects. And uh, you know, what we will do now is uh, look at these people and their works. Um, now, before I do that, I want to tell you what some people are thinking about, about uh, space and um, uh, humanity's role in space.